son of a bitch, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones! You only moved the headstones! Hello and welcome to 80s Movie Montage. This is Derek. And this is Anna. And that was pretty extreme. <laughs> Who's, is it... Who's screaming at the very end? Is it Steve or is it his boss? It's it's Steve. It's Steve screaming why. Okay, like, so why? He, okay, so that yeah. is him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Of course, in Poltergeist. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Of course. What else could that possibly have been from? <laughs> and it just happens to be our finale this year of our Halloween series. The it last is. one. What a way to go out. What a way. Yeah. We absolutely adore this movie. Is that fair for me to speak on your behalf? I've seen this movie several times, and I will watch it several times more because I, I mean, love it. several like to the third degree, <laughs> like more, more more than several. I don't even know if that makes sense. I but. have not assessed <laughs> this in like a mathematical, like exponential <laughs> kind of way. No, but no, I this. But we love this movie. This, so much yeah. so that we were like, we need to take a break from it because we watch it all the time. Is this movie perfect? No, <laughs> but it's close. <laughs> all right, so let's get started. Uh, did you realize, first of all, okay, so, well, I don't want yeah, to get too, totally. <laughs> get too ahead of myself. I already knew Nin that. 1982. Uh, so we're pretty early into the decade, but what I don't think I realized I should have. Did you know that this is an Oscar, like three times over, Oscar nominated film? No. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. For what, what, and what? Uh, you want to take a guess? So uh, it, effects? It got... Yes, but in different categories. Visual effects? Yes. <laughs> okay. Yep. They got a best effects, visual effects, Oscar nom. Sound, sound effects? I don't know. Yeah. Is that, is Good that job. One? Okay. You're two for two. Best effects, sound effects. Yep. Well, uh, editing, sound effects, editing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, those are the two that really like stuck out. I don't, I don't know what the third one might be. Yeah. You might be surprised. Best original score. Oh, okay. I can see that. Yeah. Yeah. It makes okay. sense. So just wanted to get that out of the way, but, uh, I mean, we might be circling back with composer and score, but in any case written by, we have multiple people mm. <laughs> listed for the written by, um, I think it's, probably pretty well known that this kind of came out of Spielberg's, you know, wanted to speak to in part, like, you know, he, he had an affinity for like kind of childhood type stories. Yeah. It's, it seems like the story is by him. Yeah. And then it took him and three other writers to, to get it. Two other writers. Two other writers. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, he has a story and screenplay credit for this. And yes, I believe that, you know, it, it came from his original idea mm -hmm. and we, I mean, we talk about a lot with our special returning guest, Dan, part of which is kind of this dichotomy between Poltergeist and E.T. in yeah. terms of one being so to speak, um, like a happy kind of childhood existence in E.T., and then this is the nightmare version of it. This is uh, less friendly. <laughs> less friendly. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way to put it. So, okay, um, Spielberg, he has come up, but it's been a minute. Has it? Since we, yeah, he has come up, but um, 
I mean, he came up for E.T., but that was... That was a while ago. Yeah, way way back in in season one. So with the same guest, Mm -hmm. which is why this one is so special that we get to have him for both. So some of his... Now, obviously Spielberg, huge director, huge producer, isn't as well known for his writing credits, but again, played a significant role in the creation of this one. And then among some of his other writing specific credits, we have Firelight. Probably a lot of people, he first kind of came on the scene with the Sugarland Express. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Close in. What are your favorite movies? Do you want to? Sugarland Express or no. Close Encounters of the Close Third Encounters. Kind? Yeah. <laughs> Close Encounters <laughs> of the Third Kind. It is one of my favorite movies, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, still that white whale of finding it at an outdoor screening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it just makes sense. There's so many of those like shots of just like a huge sky. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, outdoors. Yeah. It, it would work. But it would work. Who am I? So in addition to those early credits, also in season one, brought up, I think, gosh, was this like the second or third movie we did? The Goonies. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes. He has a yeah. writing credit for that, and he produced on that. Mm-hmm. So, and then he, obviously, he's done some TV work. He has writing credits on Amazing Stories, High Incident. I don't know what that is, but... I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. I was actually more surprised than anything, and I maybe shouldn't have been so surprised because we have talked about him before, but um, he has a lot of video game credits, like writing video game credits. Yeah. Okay. Medal of Honor. Oh, all right. Did you ever play that game? I don't know. I don't think so. Doesn't sound familiar. I know that's a, I am not a gamer, but I know that that's a really popular one. And then all of it's Medal like, of Honor? Medal of Honor. Okay. Yeah. And then all of it's like subsequent versions. Ah. So Underground, Allied Assault, Frontline, Allied Assault, Spearhead. That's all one. Rising Sun, Pacific Assault, and Above and Beyond. Okay. So it's all video games. Um, writing credit for AI, Artificial Intelligence. Because it was, like, inspired by this film, he has a writing credit for the Boo 2015 Poltergeist. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then coming out very, very soon, The Fablemans, which is, like, based off his life. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you mentioned that, yes, he did have to work with a couple other people for this script to happen. Uh, One of the two other credited people, Michael Grace, I'm going to say. What do you think? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. That works. So um, he has a screenplay by credit. He's also a producer, so he's not like as much a writer, I would maybe say. But among some of his writing specific credits, we have Death Hunt, Poltergeist 2, mm. The Other Side. I never realized that there was a, uh, what would you call that? A subtitle. S- subtitle. Yeah. Subtitle to the title. Marked for Death. Mm. Cool World, and then Samesies, he also has a credit for the 2015 Poltergeist. Okay, do you think, would would there be a situation where they would say, no thanks, please, I don't want this credit? (sighs) That's a really good question. I mean, that has happened before where people have kind of disowned (laughs) properties that they did work on because they were just really unhappy with the final result. I don't quite know how that, like, all shakes out, though. Like, with the WGA, like, if they're like, well, too bad if you don't <laughs> yeah. want the credit. Like, you need yeah. to have the credit. I mean, we we have, and I have in particular, kind of dumped all over the, the remake 
and it's it's fine, but I can't think of a more unnecessary remake. Uh, absolutely. Like yeah, this because yeah. the the nineteen eighty two Poltergeist still holds you, up. You joked when we opened about it not being a perfect movie, but it's very close. So it's yeah. like, why? Why? It's do so we close. Need to, yeah, it's so close that it just always made the remake seem like from the very get go, like. There, it's it's not going to be able to match, and especially Carol yeah. Ann, you're just never yeah. going to get that again. Yeah. So, no, like, yeah, I didn't even I didn't even like touch on that, but it is kind of, it's kind of shitty to like the legacy of like what everyone went through yes. for those first couple of movies. Yes, agreed. Okay, final writing credit screenplay by Mark Victor. Okay. And it looks like he and Michael pretty much have a writing partnership because it is all the same credits. So he also has writing credits for Death Hunt, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, Marked for Death, Cool World, and Poltergeist 2015. Nice. And hopefully that will be the last time we have to bring that up. (laughs) Okay. So moving on to director. Now... I feel like it just kind of has to... Steven Spielberg, right? No, oh, gosh. man. Oh, no. I'm such a jerk. That, oh, throwing shade already. So, yeah, I mean, it is, I think, something that has been talked about quite a lot. I think I've actually come to a different opinion about the whole thing. Um, I think I was, like, very much standing Spielberg way back in the day because I do love him, And I love this movie. And so I was like, well, obviously you can tell that Spielberg really was the director on this. The credited director for Poltergeist is Toby Hooper. And... And you know what? Like, whatever involvement Spielberg had, like, Toby Hooper deserves... Yes. The credit that that is due for being the director, the credited director of this movie. Yeah. Yes, Spielberg was involved, but he was the director of this movie. Hooper was. Probably very fair to say that Spielberg was a very involved producer. Yeah. And had opinions on probably a lot. And if anything, I think that's why you need to give Hooper credit because he found a way to manage that. Can you imagine how awful that, that burden must have been, like... Oh, I just want to direct this, but this Steven Spielberg guy keeps on uh, giving me some. Well, I think what, and I, and I mean that completely sarcastically. Like, what a what a great problem to have. Yeah, I mean, it probably would be a little bit frustrating because, like, Spielberg already is kind of Steven Spielberg. Like, the only reason why he couldn't, uh, I don't know if I would say legally, but according to like the rules of i think maybe the dga like you cannot be directing two movies at the same time and oh, he really? was yeah he was working on et so that, like he wanted to direct this movie mm. but he couldn't and so they brought in hooper and i just i think what i've come around to is whatever the circumstances may be i'm just not going to be the person anymore who is like shading this guy you know like just give him the credit Spielberg has more than enough credit for literally every other thing out there and I love Steven Spielberg so I'm not like trying to bash him but like let's just let's just give Hooper credit I think if we're bashing anyone and I'm not saying that we are we're bashing all of the people who are making this a bigger deal than it needs to be yeah I mean to to like put a finer point on it Spielberg did kind of this is of his own doing. Because, Are we bashing him then? Oh well, my God. Well, he, I think in some interview kind of made a point of saying like how much influence he did have on the final outcome. And that's what got people talking 
about like, oh, so he really was the one who directed this. And then he had to kind of backtrack a little bit and even put out an ad thanking Hooper for like what a great job he did on the movie. And like that just wasn't cool. I mean, he wasn't quite where he is now where he doesn't need to prove himself. Maybe he still felt this weird kind of and I think this came up with Dan, this like weird kind of territorial type attitude mm. since this was something that he, he it was his idea yeah so yeah. i think that maybe is where that came from in any case toby hooper very familiar name uh you know he had a great career he's no longer with us had a great career very well known in the horror world specifically and among some of his credits i don't think there really will be an opportunity for us to bring him up again but you don't think someone's going to want to go through 1985's Life Force? It's possible. <laughs> it, it's po- okay, it's possible. It's possible. But um so his one of his very early projects was called Eggshells. Then he just completely like his career breaks wide open with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Wow. Yeah. So that's probably where I'm going to say 99% of people know him from. Um so directed that, Eaten Alive, this is kind of interesting. Um, so he has – I don't think I've seen this for a director yet. He – it looks like he did have a little bit of, like, drama in, in his career because on two movies he was replaced. I don't know the circumstances of those experiences. But the first one was for a movie called The Dark. Mm-hmm. So he's uncredited for it because he was replaced by a different director, John Cardos. Okay. So that's the first instance. The second instance was not the one that came out just like a couple years ago, I think, Venom. Oh, wow. He worked on Venom? No. Uh, (laughs) So also uncredited, he was replaced in that film by Piers Hargard. So Hmm. I don't know how those how that came about for either one. I don't know how I should read into these grains of salt. Right, exactly. You're reading me. Um, also directed The Fun House, Invaders from Mars. He comes back for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which I think it's so funny that they changed the like stylistic way of spelling. Cha- like the first movie, I think most people don't realize it's Chainsaw, two yeah, words. But yeah. then with the sequel, it's Chainsaw, one word. He also worked on uh, two episodes of the miniseries of Stephen King's Salem's Lot. Okay. Which I can see why you brought that up. Kind of similar to uh, It, the miniseries. At mm-hmm. the time, it was it was like super cool. Probably hasn't aged as well. But at the time, uh, yeah, I thought the the miniseries of Salem's Lot was really cool. Okay, good. I'm thank you for bringing that up. And yeah, it's very I think... timely for our Halloween. Yeah, I did. I did just make a point of saying like that he did do TV work, but I um, stuck pretty much to his like filmography. So outside of everything else I've already like, again, just for the most part, like a horror director. So Night Terrors, The Mangler, Toolbox Murders, Mortuary. And then his final credit was 2013's Dijin. Am I saying that right? Dijin. Like um, from uh, the same as... It's what we a, do in the shadows, the genie. <laughs> yeah. That same, same name. Yeah. So it's interesting that you bring up like his, his horror work because on one hand it makes sense, but I almost feel like we're making a distinction between like some of what he had worked on himself. And then this, obviously there was the, the connection with Spielberg because I would say it's not too much of a stretch to say that this isn't 
doesn't give me the same feelings that a Chainsaw Massacre would give me. Yeah, I mean, horror, I think horror is a very broad genre. It probably has the most subgenres <laughs> of yeah. of any, and I think that this is just a certain kind of horror. But I think what he brought to the table that Spielberg probably, like, through through all the things that he's made, like, he knows, he knows horror, he knows how to scare people. Yes. And for all of, like, kind of the family, humor that Poltergeist brings you, there are some, like, legitimately scary mm-hmm. pieces. And so I think all I'm trying to say is that it doesn't really matter to me which one of them, like, was in the lead or did more. I think the pairing actually, like, really lent towards this movie being as great as it is. I agree with you. All right, cinematography. This is an interesting person because I feel really confident that we're going to, like, talk about him again in the future, but he hasn't come up yet. Really? Matthew F. Don't forget the F. Leonetti. Okay. So the reason why I say that is because he has a ton of really high-profile credits for, like, 80s movies that we just just randomly have not gotten to yet. But, yeah. So among his credits, uh, early in his career, he did The Bat People, Breaking Away, Here's what I mean. So he was the DP on Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Mm. Weird Science. Okay. Commando. Oh, man. That movie is ridiculous. Jumping Jack Flash. So, like, this is what I mean. Like, I feel, yeah. Like, we're going to totally get to this guy again, for sure. And it's, Mm -hmm. like, just kind of funny that we're really late into season three, and this is the first time he's come up. But... Among some of his other credits, action. I always have a problem with this one. Action Jackson. Thank you. It is tough. Angels in the Outfield, Star Trek First Contact, as well as Star Trek Insurrection, Hmm. Too Fast, Too Furious. Really? Okay. Yeah. Dawn of the Dead, the 2004 Hmm. version, which is very good. Uh, The Three Stooges, Dumb and Dumber 2. T.O., <laughs> which I just think is yeah, great. that is good. And then this is the thing that I thought was so interesting about his career. So in addition to all of those great 80s movies that I just mentioned, he did, a, like, when I say a lot, I mean a lot of TV movies. So, like, he has 91 Holy credits. Shit. Okay. 31 of them are TV movies. Wow. So a full third of his resume, TV movies. Nice. I guess it's good money. Okay. Moving on to music, Jerry Goldsmith. It does feel like he's he has just made the soundtrack to the 80s. To everything. So, for, and then, like I mentioned at the top of this episode, one of the Oscar noms was Best Original Score. So his, that was his Oscar nom. He had, over the course of his career, 18 total Oscar nominations. Hmm. Just one win. But let's go through. What did he get the win for? He got the win for The Omen. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So, unfortunately, that's a 70s movie, so we can't cover that one. But he starts off strong. I mean, really early in his career, we have Freud. That was an Oscar nom, best original score, A Patch of Blue, Samesies, The Sand Pebbles. And then he was very well known for, like, the Planet of the Apes movies. He Hmm. got an Oscar nom for that, as well as for, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. He did Escape from the Planet of the Apes. He gets another Oscar nom for Patton. For, Mm -hmm. am I going to say this right? Papillion? Papillion? I think that's exactly (laughs) 
Uh, just say it really fast, and then we just move on, and no one will even know. Chinatown? Yeah, no, that's right. Little little film called Chinatown. The Wind and the Lion. These are these were all Oscar nominated. Okay. Like I mentioned, he wins for The Omen. And in addition to actually getting the win for Best Original Score, he also had an Oscar nom for Best Original Song for The Omen. Which really? Is, yeah. Random, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he also scored Damien Omen 2. So it's sequel. The Boys from Brazil, Star Trek, The Motion Picture, Alien. Really? That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that is a great soundtrack. Yep. The Secret of Nim. Mm-hmm. For and I mean also, especially as I'm getting we to We will cover that eventually, I, I think. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. As I'm getting to these films that um are of this particular era that we talk about, I think that it becomes really clear, like, this guy had such range in terms of, like, the different films that he scored. Uh, First Blood, as well as Rambo, First Blood, Part 2. Man, I I always get... (laughs) I always get irrationally upset when I think of how, like, solid and, like, good the first... Yeah. First Blood was, and how, like, they kind of... They kind of, like, took this message that was about like how this soldier was just like thrown away, mm-hmm. like just left to fend for his, for himself. And then they somehow turned that into like a series, like a franchise of just like all out chaotic war with him like, being yeah. this just character, super soldier of what kind of the thing. original character was. Yeah. 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 So that, that seems weird, but yeah, you know, yeah, Hollywood, Gets another Oscar nom for Under Fire. Uh, the last time, well, yeah, the last time we covered him actually was a minute ago. It was for Gremlins. Hmm. And he also composed The New Batch. So he did that. Supergirl, maybe we'll do that at some point. Explorers, he comes back for Poltergeist to the other side. Hmm. Hoosiers gets another Oscar nom for that. Very inspirational. Coming up. The Burbs. Oh. So. Is that a spoiler? It is. Wow. It's a little bit of a spoiler. Uh, Total Recall. He actually got an Oscar nom for Basic Instinct. Okay. I brought this up before. This was such a swoony movie for me first night. Oh, man. Yeah. That kiss. You you talk about that kiss and I'm like, (laughs) it just looks like they're going to break their teeth. That was that must have been dangerous. That looked like a very it was dangerous a kiss. Violent kiss. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. Also well known for his connection to like the Star Trek movies. So he scored Star Trek First Contact, Star Trek Insurrection, Star Trek Nemesis, <laughs> Star Trek Incident at Beta Nine. I'm not aware of that incident. And Star Trek The Final Darkness. The Final Darkness. Okay. He gets another Oscar nom for L.A. Confidential, as well as Mulan. One of our favorite movies, the 99, The Mummy. That is good. And then, you know, somebody who has 256 composing credits, there's some TV thrown in there as well. I focused on the film work, but he did a lot, a lot of television. There's some fun things in there, too. And so I just want to bring up that the 8-bit theme for the Universal logo, oh. when, when you see Scott Pilgrim, okay, that that's him. Cool. And then he also worked on something called Spoof Trek Four: The Parody Home. Okay. So there you go. <laughs> that sounds fun. So moving on to editing, 
a gentleman that is still going strong, and we have brought him up before, Michael Kahn, 87 years old. So good on him for still still doing it. He also has had a lot of Oscar love. So early in his career. Now, this is a gentleman who collaborate like it really like right now um is a collaborator still of spielberg's pretty much his go-to editor okay and he gets his first oscar nom for close encounters of the third kind he works with spielberg on ni- 1941 okay not quite of the caliber <laughs> of close encounters but well, hey they I can't mean, all be at close encounters that's that's fair yeah uh, we talked about him for Raiders, mm-hmm. Raiders, and he did all the he did all the indie movies. So, and he did <laughs> actually. I'm not sure if I would call any of these indies. Oh my goodness, Derek! Should I edit that out? No, we're gonna, we're keep we're keeping that just so you could be reminded of it. <laughs> uh, he and then he did actually win best editing for Raiders. Okay, I think deservedly so. Um, he did, we talked about him for the Goonies. Mm -hmm. He was the editor on the Goonies. Color Purple. This is so interesting. Like, he didn't work exclusively with, or doesn't work exclusively with Spielberg. He cut Fatal Attraction. Okay. For which he got a Best Editing Oscar nomination. All right, nice. Interesting. He also gets an Oscar nom for Empire of the Sun. Mm -hmm. He does Hook, Jurassic Park. Uh... Very deservedly so. He wins another editing Oscar for Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. He cuts Twister. Amistad wins yet again. This one for, like, especially just that opening sequence alone. He wins another Oscar for Saving Private Ryan. Hmm. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, right? The the opening sequence was... I, I, I can't even really call it intense. It was... It like kind of set you up for what you were getting in into yeah. for the rest of the movie, but it was just, it, yeah, it was incredible. It was very. I mean, I think I've mentioned it before. Obviously, a spectacular film that I don't know if I could ever watch again. It's very difficult to watch it again, and I'm not even really saying that because of the opening scene. Right. I'm talking about that right. other scene. Yes. That's and very... I don't even have to say what it is because anyone who's seen the movie knows exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. So we have a lot more Spielberg work. He was the editor on AI, Artificial Intelligence, Minority Report, Catch Me If You Can, War of the Worlds, gets another Oscar nomination for Munich. Hmm. He works on War Horse. As of right now, he has his last editing Oscar nomination for Lincoln. But since then, he's also worked on Bridge of Spies, The BFG, The Post, Ready Player One, West Side Story. And like I said, still absolutely working. He is the editor on The Fablemans. Mm. And right now, they're on pre-production on another movie that he's attached to called The Kidnapping of El Guardo Mortara. All right. Don't know the, uh, what that is. The only thing I wanted to add to that was sure. you, you mentioned the BFG. Mm-hmm. And w- one of the, I think not this most recent time we saw John Williams at the Hollywood Bowl, but the time before oh. that, <laughs> when, yeah. like he featured some music from the BFG and he, he's got to be one of the only people around who can, you know, he was, he was talking about, yeah, this movie didn't do so good. <laughs> Sorry, Steven, they can't all be, you the know. The only one who can, uh 
kind of give Spielberg a little bit of a jab. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was giving him the business. Yeah. As, giving uh, him the business. <laughs> as they would say, <laughs> which was uh, really, really like fun and endearing. Like you get the sense that Williams like really enjoys. They love each like, other. Yeah. 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 So that was, that was fun. And sadly still haven't seen it. So no, no. I haven't either. Yep. Yeah. Okay. We are at the stars of this movie. We, well, maybe I briefly mentioned him at the top of our conversation. We We're ab- starting with. Absolutely did. Yeah. Yeah. Steve Freeling, played by Craig T. Nelson. Mr. Incredible himself. Yeah. And that's something that like, man, I just, I love the casting of this movie. I got to say, they really knocked it out. I mean, we do talk with Dan about, it wasn't really the casting as much as like, a certain character being needed, basically the the elder daughter, Dana. Oh, yeah. Um, but the, the casting was great. Yeah. And Craig T. Nelson, I just love him in this movie. This is probably my favorite thing that he's done. I mean, and that, like, we have a ton of friends who, like, love The Incredibles and, I don't know, maybe in a generation before us know him more so from Coach, but, like, I, I just... I, I gotta be honest, I was not a fan of Coach. I didn't watch Coach. No, I didn't yeah. I didn't really watch it. Um, I, I really liked his character in The Family Stone, but The Family yeah. Stone Ugh. is such... It's, it's such an uncomfortable oh movie God. to watch. It really, it's got, it's such like such great moments, but it is just so hard to watch. It has so many great actors in it. And I think it's intentional that there is a lot of discomfort. I, I think Absolutely. that that's what it was trying to go for. Absolutely. And boy, did they succeed. But in any case, am I going to watch saving private Ryan again or the family stone? Oh, I don't know. Sophie's choice, but like the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want either. <laughs> Okay, so he's had a great career, and he still is very much going strong. Um, really early in his career, I did not know this until I was like doing my my research for this film. He was in Scream, Blackula Scream. Oh, didn't know that. Not, not familiar with that. And he's not even the only one in this cast who was in that movie, but I'll get to that. Uh, he was in Private Benjamin. Some of these movies we might, we might do. Private Benjamin, Stir Crazy. I guess uh, I didn't know that there was a TV version of Private Benjamin for which he came back. There was, yes. I do remember that. Oh, yeah. okay. He Now, I wouldn't say this would be the second thing I would think of with him, but I do definitely associate him with All the Right Moves. That's another movie that... Maybe at some point we'll do. That's that football thing, right? Yeah, he's the he is the coach. Uh, he he does like a lot of like football coach <laughs> kind of roles. I, I honestly don't know. Like I just believe it. I believe that he is a football coach. He has that about him, doesn't yeah, he? He yeah. does. Uh the Osterman weekend, Silkwood, and I mean, he goes back and forth, I think, pretty easily between film and television. He was in a show called Call the Glory. Hmm. Don't know it. He does come back for pull. Everybody does except for, and we'll we'll get to the actress who played Dana. Everybody returns for Poltergeist to the other side. So he's in that. Uh, the movie I trip over all the time that I just brought up, Action Jackson. Nailed it. Yay. Thank you. Uh, he's in Turner and Hooch, Ghost of Mississippi, the aforementioned coach. I think he got an Emmy for that at some point. I believe it. Yeah, that was on for a while. He's in the film The Devil's Advocate. Hmm. I won't bring up 
that you've told me that you like that movie a lot? Because I, I don't. And I, and I don't think but, I have. But you have? Okay. <laughs> I don't think um, that's true. He was on the TV show The District. And then, like I mentioned, he does have a pretty, I think, iconic voice. I think when if you were to play a clip from something without seeing it, I think you would know it was him. I did that at the very start of this episode. This is true. Yes. And he is Mr. Incredible. Mm-hmm. In The Incredible. And then he comes back, which it wasn't even that long ago. There was a long stint of time between the first movie and the sequel. There was, yeah, because they don't do a lot of Pixar sequels. I don't think. Like, Cars is kind of a outlier, maybe. I I definitely can't claim to know, like, Pixar filmography that well. Yeah, I I didn't think they were going to do a... a sequel. And, and then they have like, what, Toy Story 15 by now? Right, exactly. So he's Mr. Incredible in the original and the sequel. Like you said, he's in the Family Stone. He he does have a fun role in Blades of Glory. Hmm. Yeah. And then there's been like a couple iterations, I think, of this show. The second one, he's in Parenthood. So like the movie Parenthood immediately did have a TV series that oh, I didn't know that. was spawned I... from it in the early 90s. And now and there's then... a new one now, right? That well, that one went away, and then they like brought it back with obviously all new characters and really like not super. It had a much more serious tone than the film ever did, um, and I'm assuming the first television show did. I never watched it. The most serious, like the the original movie, was like this weird like. Here's Steve Martin making like a balloon animal of like your intestine. Because I just, just know a mess. the song. Oh. Uh, the baseball song, when you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> diarrhea, Di- anyway. Oh man, um, what a movie. And what then movie. just to wrap things up with him, he is on Young Sheldon. I don't watch that show, but he does have a credit for it, Young Sheldon. I only don't watch that because <laughs> I avoid anything in that universe. Yeah, it seems like tonally it's a little bit different than Big Bang Theory, but, and it's not like, in, I don't, I don't think it's filmed in front of a live television audience watching uh what is essentially a prequel to a show that i do not want to watch is still something that i do not necessarily want to watch fair but i hope everyone enjoys it okay moving on to diane freeling played by joe beth williams same absolutely adore her in this (laughs) same moving on no but like i i I love her in this role. I love him in this role. I I love love them them together. Exactly. Yeah. They, they are such a believable, like just kind of wholesome couple. They're great. Incredible chemistry. They really, yeah, they really do. Some of the best chemistry, honestly, that I've ever seen from like, like a two people set up to be a couple in a film between like them in the bedroom where they're kind of like the kids are kind of like going to sleep and he's like doing that thing where he's like sucking in his gut and they're getting stoned and And then they go downstairs like not downstairs they go to the neighbor's house to ask about it like there are some scenes where they're just like they're so believable they're so fucking good together yeah like they're so so good okay so love her and yeah she's she's been working this entire time um some of her early work kramer versus kramer also in stir crazy Hmm. funny enough she was on the soap opera for a while guiding light never watched it i don't even think it's around anymore but she was on it uh she's in the big chill Maybe that one will come through at some point. A film called Teachers. She was in that. She, like I said, comes back for Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. I really like this movie, Dutch. Is that the uh, one with uh, Ed O'Neill? Yeah. 
I think it's a cute film. So she's in that, White Herb. Some of her, the more recent credits that I have for her kind of all pivot more so to television. So she was on the TV series The Client. She was in Dexter. She has credits oh, really? for Dexter. Okay. Private Practice and Heart of Dixie. So those are like recurring type roles, but she's just, she's also done a lot of like TV appearances where it's like more one-offs. Got it. So yeah, still very busy. Okay. So mm-hmm. what is really challenging about talking with, about this film is that it is associated with the really um, premature passings of two of the stars of it. And it's really challenging to talk about the deaths of children. Um, the first of which is Heather Urwerk. So of course she played Carol Ann. And so this film was 82. She passed just six years later. So she was still very, very young of the, the official kind of, I guess, diagnosis you would say was intestinal stenosis and cardiac arrest. Hmm. So I, I mean, I remember when she passed, like I was little and I remember when she passed, that was shocking to me, like as a child to hear of a child's death yeah. and a really famous child. And I think, I think it was shocking to everybody. I think if I am remembering correctly, it kind of boiled down to like a misdiagnosis of what was going on with her. And unfortunately they just like didn't figure it out in time to be able to address it. And so the condition progressed and she passed. So unfortunately she doesn't have a lot of credits um, because she wasn't with us as long as she should have been. Uh, But among the credits that she does have some TV work, she was on happy days as well as Webster she does come back for Poltergeist to the other side. I think at the time of that filming, there was nothing too prominent uh, as far as like her health was concerned. However, I think most people realize that in Poltergeist 3, um, she does not look well. Yeah. Was 3 the one with uh, Tom Skerritt mm-hmm. in it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I get 2 and 3. I mean, 1 is kind of like the singular yeah. title within the, like the, the franchise for me, but so, okay. It was three where, where yeah. things took a downturn. And if I, again, am remembering correctly, I was reading that the director of that film, the, his name escapes me that he didn't, he didn't want to move forward. He thought it was very disrespectful. No, we've actually seen like, we've seen something mm-hmm. where he specifically mm-hmm. said that, I, I think. And pretty much like the they studio not, twisted his arm. They're like, yeah. no, we've sunk money into this and this is happening. They did not want to have to finish yeah. it. And they were, they were, told, yeah. Nope, you're going to. Yep. So, um, yeah, I, I'm very sad. And, and for being so young when she passed, you know, in addition to the credits I listed, she had other TV appearances. Like, you know, who's to say where her career could have gone, you know, if she had stayed with us? And it is just really hard to talk about it that not only is it – like, look, we're talking about films from the 80s. So, of course, I feel like every episode – there's somebody prominent attached with that movie that's no longer with us, but very, very, very rarely do we have to talk about the death of a child. Yeah. So it's hard. Um, okay. So moving on to Robbie, uh, middle child, 
feel like it kind of has middle child syndrome going on in this film, uh, played by Oliver Robbins. But he does a great job. He's just trying to get through this movie. He's just fucking trying to, like, survive this all, (laughs) you know? Like, he knows that Carol Ann is kind of the golden child. (laughs) Like, she's the baby. Everybody loves her. got this thunderstorm, this He's got his own shit going on. Who the fuck bought him that clown? Yeah, he's kind of having to deal with a lot on his own. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, he does a great job. And I want to say that maybe, like, of... Because he, do, he doesn't actually have a ton of credits. I don't think, like, he really kind of stayed so much in the acting world. Although some of his credits are more recent, actually. Um, but I think a lot of people might recognize him from Airplane 2, the sequel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And his little dog, Scraps. Yeah. Yep. So They, they saved the day at the end. So there's that. And then, but then he does come back for Poltergeist 2. Same as everybody else, the other side. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing. So Poltergeist 2 was 86. Then there is a 22-year acting break. Sure, why not? The next credit that he has is for a film called Man Overboard. Mm. And then even more recently, we jump from 2008 to 2019 for Celebrity Crush. And then beyond that, we have Rideshare Killer. The Rideshare Killer. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. Okay. Unfortunately... We, again, um, have to cover a really challenging aspect of this film, which is the other passing of the other daughter. Thank you for giving us Robbie as a, as a, a brief respite. Kind of in between, yeah. Um, so the eldest child in the family, Dana Freeling, was played by Dominique Dunn not too long ago. And we kind of briefly brought this up uh, when we were discussing An American Werewolf in London that film stars her brother, who pass, <laughs> passes Jack um, in the film and comes back to, yeah, do his thing. But uh, in this movie, you know, like we talk about with Dan, it wasn't, I don't think, like a bad casting choice. It was more so like, was this character really necessary for the film? And we kind of go back and forth as to like why she should or shouldn't be in the movie. Yeah. Uh, but it has nothing to do with the actress who who plays the character. And yeah, she was a little bit older. Um, I Her exact age escapes me, but she still was quite young. She was either in her very late teens or early 20s. If anything, it just kind of like paints like a, a larger picture for the parents. Like they had her sure. when they were much younger. Then they didn't have kids for a while, and they had a couple more. So it kind of gives you like a more complete like family. Oh, I have to tell you profile. something about that. Oh my god, what? So I know that that comes up all the time between you and I, where when they're we're doing the math. When well, when they're talking to Doctor Lesh about the fam, when Steve is, and he mentions that Dana's sixteen, but that Diane is thirty-two. Uh huh. So saying that like she had her when she was sixteen or about there. You know, you and I were like, holy shit, like they had her really, really young. Apparently, it, there was like a novelization of the film, as they often do, like in like after the fact. Mm-hmm. I don't like this at all. I don't think they should have done this way. I think it actually could have worked just fine to say that they were like high school sweethearts and got pregnant early. Yeah. Apparently, Diane is supposed to be Steve's second wife. And so she is technically the stepmother. 
to Dana. <laughs> I do not accept this. I don't like it either. I, uh, no, that's not So canon. I'm just not gonna, yeah, go down that. But, like, that's supposedly, because, like, obviously we're not the only two that picked up on the age, ages. Mm. So that's, I guess, what that explanation is, is that, and because then also Steve is supposed to be, like, older than, than Diane. I don't think they look, I don't think there looks like there's a huge age gap he between might, them. He might be a couple years, a little bit. A couple bit, years, but, I don't, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, so In any case, that's what that's supposed to be about. I choose to reject that reality. Yeah, me too. And I don't think she acts like a stepmother to her at all. No. But I think she's just as a mother. In any case. So I mean, Dominique yeah. Dunn um, passed away also very young. She was the victim of abuse by her ex-boyfriend. And the same as Heather O'Rourke did not have an opportunity to, you know, stay with us long enough to have a long career in acting. Um, but before she passed, she was in the TV series breaking away. And then she had a lot of TV appearances. Um, I mean, in a lot of like huge hits from that era, like late seventies, early eighties family, Lou Grant, heart to heart, fame chips and Hill street blues. Hmm. Um, v. I don't know that one. Oh, isn't that like an earlier iteration of that alien show? Is that what that is? It, yeah, I don't know if it was an earlier, but it was like this, like really overly dramatized uh, alien takeover yeah. of planet Earth by like these lizard people. So basically Zuckerberg. And but there was a there was like a new version of that that came out a couple years ago. I think there was. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't. Right. See that version, but yeah. I remember the old version, and yeah. Okay, so moving on to Beatrice Strait, who plays Dr. Lush. And she's such a – I love her. I Again, I just love the casting of this film. I think it's spot on. I think she gets overlooked – and we talk about this with Dan. She gets overlooked a lot because – Well, I think she does in terms of like – like she plays such a pivotal role, but – Tangina just kind of steals the show. She steals it from everyone, though. She does, yeah. <laughs> but, um, and did you realize that actually she is an Oscar-winning actress? I did not realize that until just now. Yeah. So uh, some of her early work includes Phone Call from a Stranger, The Nun Story. Now, this wouldn't normally be one that I throw in because it's very obscure. I try to stick to maybe properties that most people would know. No, hell with that. I love the obscure ones. I had to put her in for, it was a, like it's a T, so the TV series was the wide world of mystery, but I think that it's kind of an, it was like an anthology. Okay. So every episode was a world unto itself. They didn't really connect per se. And I just very randomly, um, I want to say it was like UCLA, was doing a series that was like bringing to light kind of these like gothic ghost stories from the 70s. Okay. Incredibly hard to find on your own. Like only really an entity like UCLA could have like sourced these. And there was one that I watched called The Haunting of Rosalind. And it was so interesting. She plays the mother. It's set during, I want to say the Civil War. Mm. And like one of her two daughters kind of gets, like it's just, it was really interesting because it was like filmed live, you can tell. Wow. And so it was like a play that was being filmed for television. And so yeah, she's in it. She did great. It was a really interesting watch. Uh, So yeah, she's on that or was on that TV series called Beacon Hill. So she gets her Oscar, Best Supporting Actress for the Movie Network. Okay, I can yeah. see that. Yeah, that makes sense. 
She was on the TV series Wonder Woman, the film Endless Love. She comes. She also switch. She kind of does these like switch back and forth between film and TV. She was on the TV show King's Crossing. She does the film Two of a Kind, uh, a more well known TV show. She was on Saint Elsewhere. She was in the film Deceived, and then in addition to everything I've already listed, just in general, did a lot of TV work, both like maybe a couple episodes here and there, maybe a one-off or something else. Of so, course, the TV movie of The Borrowers, little seven, eight-inch people that live inside a oh, wall or it. something. Yeah. You watched it? I, I think so. You I think so? I, I don't know how else I would have it. <laughs> okay, so moving on to Richard Lawson, who plays Ryan. So he is one of the two people that works with Dr. Lush who did not have the hallucination of ripping off his face. <laughs> yes. He's the one that sticks with it. He's the guy that, that hangs Smel around. Yeah. He smells the tennis ball. <laughs> like, which makes him possibly one of the bravest people in this movie. Yes, yes. That, the tennis ball, like the fuzzy, fluffy, like uh, ectoplasm yes, coated. the pink ectoplasm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's him. And uh, yeah, so he is still very much working. The reason why I brought up Craig T. Nelson in Scream, Blackula Scream, is because he is also in Scream, Amazing. Blackula Scream. So he was in that. The TV show Hotel Story, the film Coming Home. Uh, a lot of, yeah, I think I mostly have TV work for him. He was on the TV show Chicago Story, Dynasty. That was a big 80s oh. movie. Uh, I vaguely remember the days and nights of Molly Dodd. I do remember that title. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I watched much of it. I didn't watch it, but uh, he did a lot of like soap opera. So he was on 132 episodes of All My Children. Wow, that's a lot of children. So he had a long stint on that. Oh yeah. my goodness. Not a lot of children, but a lot of episodes. All, okay, yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, the film How Stella Got Her Groove Back. All right. Yep. Another TV show, Sister, Sister. The movie for Colored Girls. The TV miniseries, Angry Boys, and then this juggernaut of a show, he has been on Grey's Anatomy. And, of course, saving the best for last, he was on three episodes, and I think I remember these, of Mick Giver. Oh, okay. And then a weird connection between some of the other Poltergeist movies. He was on an episode of Picket Fences, of course, featuring Tom Skerritt. Okay. From Poltergeist 3, so there you go. Yeah, look at that. It's like a... Six degrees of Kevin Bacon kind of thing going on. Only with Tom Skerritt. Only with Tom Skerritt. How many degrees is that for him? Zero. Okay. Wait. I don't know. <laughs> I can't do math. Anyway. All right. So moving on to Martin Casella. He plays Dr. Lush's other associate, Marty. So they didn't really go too far with the name. Martin plays Marty. But he is the one who has the hallucination of ripping his face off and is like, I am piecing out of here. Well, he didn't just rip his face off. He ripped his face off after seeing a uh, stake just start crawling across. Sure. Right? And then and then he realized it was like full of like maggots. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was all a hallucination. Hey, man, you know, maybe don't just like go into someone's fridge and grab a whole steak. Such a random thing to do, to be like, yeah, I'm like shacking up in this person, like stranger's house. So I'm going to just like literally eat them out of house and home. Ghost like, hunting apparently is very protein intensive and you just need to recoup. And not only did he, he was like going to cook up a steak, but even before he did that, he and, like, grabbed like one another. In the morning. He 
he had like, a, doesn't he have like a pork chop or something also in his mouth? That's he, son of a bitch. I think you're yeah. right. Yeah. So like, good Lord, man, get your own goddamn food. Anyway. So I think what we're saying is like, he had it coming with this whole. <laughs> you know. So here's what's funny. I mean, he does have some acting credits. Um, not a ton. I have six weeks, heart like a wheel, RoboCop two. Not terrible. Okay, and a TV movie of Turner and Hooch. Didn't know that existed. Mm. But here's what's interesting. He actually was Spielberg's assistant on Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's very fun. So I don't know if he was like, sure, I'd like to try acting, or if Spielberg kind of threw him this. I don't know. I don't know how that all worked out. I don't know why he did not really stick with acting. He's like, am I going to really have to rip off my face? No, it'll be an effect. Yes, exactly. Which... It's interesting because, like, yeah, that era has a couple of those, like... They did their best. They did their best with what they had at the time. But it's, like, very similar to, like, in The Terminator and, like, that kind of animatronic-looking... You can get away with it a little bit more in The Terminator because he is, in fact, supposed to be a robot. So if it doesn't... You know, like, if that illusion is broken, it's like... Team Wolf, you have a scene like... It's always somebody looking in a mirror. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hard look in the mirror. Hard look in the (laughs) mirror. Just look long Man enough the for the mirror. effect to uh, work. Okay. So moving on to, uh, we brought her up a couple minutes ago, the character Tangina, played by Zelda Rubenstein. Mm-hmm. Rubenstein. Rubenstein, I think. Okay. I think we always do that, Stein versus Stein. Yeah, I never know. I'm going to say Stein. Okay, yeah. She absolutely fucking steals this movie the second she walks on. She... She bore such a, an amazing resemblance to my mom's mom's, my grandma, okay. maternal grandmother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much so that I was like very confused the first time I saw this movie. I'm oh, like, really? why is my, why is my grandma? Like, even oh. with like the, like kind of the, the accent and everything. Interesting. Yeah. yeah it was, yeah. it was crazy. She's so fun. I mean, when I was kind of looking up, uh, her career history, she was in a totally different field. I think she worked in medicine. And when she hit about 40, she was just like, you know, I want to try something different. I want to try acting. And she went for it and had a really successful second ha- like a second career yeah. as an actor. It's, I've heard it's just that easy. Just right. I know. I know. Let's do it. Well, I think, you know, we that comes up with Dan in terms of like she is a very specific has a very specific kind of look she's very diminutive Mm -hmm. and like you said she has a very distinct voice and she has just this like really unique on-screen presence that yeah no that's that's all you need yeah right yeah it's hard not to clock her you know like she just is really unique so okay so for not having started her acting career until she was like midway through her life she has some really great credits under the rainbow francis Maybe what other people know her from is 16 Candles. Hmm. Uh, she, too, comes back for Poltergeist 2 and 3. So she returns for both. Teen Witch. She was on the TV series Santa Barbara, the film Guilty as Charged. You brought this up. She was on the TV series Picket Fences. Oh, okay. There you go. It's all... It's all coming back to Tom Skerritt. It does. Yeah. Little Witches Wish Craft. Oh, I get it. Get it. Angels with Angles. These are kind of tough titles to wrap your tongue around. Like <laughs> civil engineers or like, I, what, what's their angle? I don't know. And then her final credit, she's no longer with us. 
Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, which is kind of a meta-horror film. Okay, final credit for James Karen. So he plays Mr. Teague. Uh, he was also featured in the opening. Um, he is basically Steve's boss. I don't know if he said anything, but he was featured in the sense that imagine oh, Steve sure, sure. just like shaking the living hell out of him yeah. as he was screaming. With his eyes kind of bugging out of his face. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Mr. Teague had a very long and distinguished career. He is also no longer with us. 209 acting credits. Wow. Nothing to sneeze at. And some of his really early credits are super fun. He was in a film called Frankenstein Meets the Space Monster. Oh, I love those mashups. Right. Those are so much fun. So fun. He was in Hercules in New York. So that was, uh, oh, early Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, taking a, you know, 90 degree turn from that. He was in All the President's Men. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the China Syndrome. He was on the TV series Eight is Enough. Did that. The 1980 version. Why of were there so many sitcoms about just having family like, mashups? Way too many kids. Or, I never. So it is. I know that that was like in syndication. I never watched it. But was that just one family with eight kids? Or was it like the Brady Bunch? Or were they all. I think. They had eight and said, this is enough. Okay, so they really did have eight kids. Like, I so think was, so. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So, like I said, the 1980 version of the jazz singer. I love this. Take this job and shove it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I ain't working yeah. here no more. Wait. It's a song and I guess also a movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, he was also in the film Francis. He, I love when this happens. So he was on Quincy M.E. Oh, medical examiner. <laughs> Good job. Yeah. Uh, but plays four different characters. <laughs> I love that. Love that. He was also on the show The Powers of Matthew Starr. What were those powers? You got me. Okay. Don't know. All right. The Return of the Living Dead as well as its sequel, Jagged Edge, Wall Street, was in the film Wall Street. Greed is good. The TV movie, Revenge of the Nerds 4, Nerds in Love. Wait, there was a, a TV movie? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. I included this because I just thought this was really fun. So it was not a recurring role. I don't usually list the one-offs, but he did have a like guest star appearance on Coach. That's fun. So he reunites yeah. with Craig T. Nelson. Do you think they do you think they like did anything to acknowledge? <sighs> That's a great question. I like when they throw in like a little Easter, Easter egg. egg or something, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Neither of us watched Call the show. Call to action. Call to action. Good one. Congo, Nixon, up close and personal, behind en enemy lines, apt pupil, Mulholland Drive. I mean, was so busy up until he left us. Uh, he was on the TV series First Monday, The Pursuit of Happiness, the TV show Ned and Stacy. His final credit was 2018's Cynthia. And then in addition to everything that I've listed, which was a lot, I have like almost 30 credits for him, lots of TV appearances. Mm -hmm. Okay, film synopsis. What do we have? A family's home is haunted by a host of demonic ghosts. Okay. This is rubbish. It's really bad. This is this is not 
This is not up that's to it. snuff. Just so you know, people, that's it. Like, Derek didn't, like, interrupt me or something. That was just it. That, that's the entire synopsis. Oh, man. I don't I don't know how to fix it other than just start start over. Yeah. Just delete that, and we got to come up with something better because this isn't, like, Ghost Hunters with mm-hmm. that guy who turned everything to a demon. Mm-hmm. Let's not make it that. Mm-hmm. It's bad. It's First tour. of all, Dr. Lush makes it really clear that it's not a haunting. Mm-mm. It's a poltergeist. So there's that. It's in the title. And then they're not demonic ghosts. Like, there's no fucking nuance to the synopsis. Like, I they're... mean, it's a very evil presence. But that's in addition yeah. to the ghosts. Yeah. The ghosts who just don't know that they're dead. Yeah. Well, this sadly... And they were very benign they weren't really doing anything they're just kind of hanging out because they didn't know where they were i gotta give the synopsis to this five-star movie half a star yeah it's pretty bad it's terrible so on that note let's get into it with our guest dan let's do it all right we are so very excited to have here today truly one of our favorite people it's true. Steven it's Spielberg. very, very. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, I respect him as a filmmaker, but I can't say that I love him the way that I love. Well, now I'm ta- just talking to you, Dan, but the way that sure. I love our guest, uh, he is he is truly just a phenomenal person. He is a very important person in our lives, but he also is a phenomenal creative professional in the field. He's a director, writer, editor. And we have him as a returning guest today. So Dan Strange, welcome back. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having Thank you for the extremely kind words. That's very sweet. Thank you. All true. I'm just blushing over here. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, what's really fun about... So we've had a handful of returning guests. But what makes this a little bit different is that in relationship to the films that... Or the Mm -hmm. film that we covered... Mm-hmm. And the film that we're covering today, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's like a really interesting relationship between the two. So you were part of the show way back in 2020 during our first season. And for that episode, we did E.T. So today, Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. and Same neighborhood, I think. <laughs> I know. I, yeah. think I actually, you know, those opening shots where the guy's on the bicycle, I was like, is this the same suburb? Right. Yeah. Feels like it. Does, I mean, there's, does E.T. take place in Cuesta Verde? I I was actually thinking, we re, I mean, we've seen this movie so many times because we love it. Um, but we rewatched it for the point of the podcast. And yeah, the same same exact thought went through my mind. So we're gonna we're gonna dive in. There's a lot to cover. And as I do, my first question is just do you have any memories of seeing this for the first time? It's okay if you don't. But if you do, just what that first impression was. Yeah. um, So it came out the same week as E.T. And um, I think I covered this in the the previous one. I was pretty young, so there was Mm -hmm. no way I was going to get to the theater without my parents taking me. My parents decided to take me to E.T. They did not decide to take me to Poltergeist. So I didn't see it in the theater. Mm. The first time I, and I'd hear about it on the playground at school, which is the worst, you know, because everybody knows the best. Like, the guy rips his face off. And you're like, ah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was this communal thing that all the other kids had somehow, they'd all suckered their parents into seeing it, but I was on the outs. And then um, 
I was on the outside of it. And then one day at home, I discovered a, a VHS tape that was labeled Poltergeist. And I was like, wait, what? And what had <laughs> happened was that someone in my family had taped it off of TV when it was oh, on okay. ABC or whatever. So they cut out, uh, obviously for, for broadcast, they cut out the truly scary bits. Mm-hmm. So when I watched it, I had a very clear feeling that like stuff was missing. It felt choppy, even okay. to this young editor. I was yeah, like, editor <laughs> and, and <laughs> yeah. so it feels like there's it feels clunky in places. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never felt like I really saw Poltergeist, um, but it was very useful in terms of my education as a budding filmmaker because I would. I would rewatch, but I would also fast forward to see how long, you know, because the way it's shot, uh, oftentimes a camera move is very, there will be long camera moves. And so I would play it on fast forward to see how long does this camera move last, like the very last shot with the, the TV getting rolled out of the hotel room. And then the camera pulls back. I was like, well, do they really, how, how long do they run without cutting? And so stuff like that was really interesting to me, but I never really felt like I saw it until maybe five years ago honestly oh wow wow. yeah because i you know we were sarah my wife and i were sitting around and you know what's a movie to watch oh how about poltergeist i was like yes i finally get to fill in those blanks and when we watched it i was like oh god it's so good (laughs) (laughs) so good well okay so we will get to like this more recent experience of seeing the film but like so Dialing back to like when you were a kid, did it even feel like since the scarier bits were cut out for broadcast, did it even feel like what were the scary? scary bits? Yeah, what was what was taken out? Well, like, did it feel like a scary movie to you? Like, what? How would you have like titled that like by genre when you were younger? If like all the like more horrific parts were cut? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'll answer them in order. the The biggest thing that was missing was the guy ripping his face off. That's, okay. That's, in the, that's fair. In the yeah. TV yeah. version, he goes into the closet. He he starts to paw at his face. You cut to the sink, and then you cut back, and he's like, "Whoa, I feel I'm gonna leave," you know. And got it. It's like mm, I know that there's more. <laughs> 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 that's the big one that stands out. But what I guess I would sort of classify it as horror, but maybe adventure. I don't know. Maybe mm, ghost story. thriller. Mm-hmm. Thriller. Yeah. Uh, it it didn't seem scary to me, but also that was because I'd be sitting there watching it at two o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and rewinding it over. You know, the lights are, yeah. are bright. It's a sunny day. So, yeah, I never really got scared. I, I, I missed the opportunity of being scared by Poltergeist. I'm guessing if there was maybe another part that was cut, probably that um, like skeletal dog kind of creature that was no, guarding the, the door that, that was there shows up yeah really okay one of my favorite effects by the way just so fantastic. it still yeah. looks pretty good yeah it still it looks does. pretty good that's one of the things i love about it a lot of the effects from that era by ilm have this because they're practical but also because they're executed very cleverly like the way i would that, say um the only one that i don't think ever looked that great is when they pull him out of the tree, when they pull the kid mm-hmm. out of the tree and it like gets yeah. sucked up by the, yeah, that I'm like, well, Tornado. Yeah. you know what yeah, practical I love the actual real skeletons. <laughs> they 
yeah. in the pool. They look pretty good. <laughs> they look pretty good. They look very real. Are they? <laughs> yeah. Huh. I wonder why. But, well, <laughs> Do they get any credits? Well, you know, look, we'll we'll go down that that rabbit hole because I'm just like, how does one come across actual bodies? Hey, we like, need I some skeletons yeah, for this movie. Like, I gotcha. I mean, yeah. I I know, I know that a guy. <laughs> he's dead. <laughs> yeah, he's exa- a skeleton. Exactly. Like, who's the guy you know that's like, oh sure, I can grab. I got a skeleton guy. <laughs> yeah, I got a skeleton guy. Um, <laughs> but so at the time that you saw it, because what I'm curious about is like, you know, we. We did talk about E.T. the last time you were on, and at this point, you know, Spielberg was already, like, I I love Spielberg as a film, filmmaker to this day, but I do have a special attachment to, like, his very early work. So yeah. the films like Jaws and Close Encounters and Raiders, like, were those already on your radar as a kid? Like, were, and, and I know that there, this even gets into a gray area because you even mentioned, uh, like, Toby Hooper, and he is the credited director yes. of this film mm. um yes. but and we'll get to him but like we were will. you familiar with spielberg's work at the time that you saw it for the first first viewing i had definitely seen raiders by that point okay and i knew that raiders is, was one of the best films i'd ever seen probably yeah. still is yeah um and i'd seen et so yeah i i definitely knew who spielberg was because i remember that the the name meant something to me when they keep splashing it it's so funny like in the in terms of the on-screen credits of that movie spielberg's name is splashed everywhere at every <laughs> opportunity in such a larger font than everyone else's so i definitely i definitely recognized oh yeah spielberg yeah i mean we can we can get to it now since like we're we're on that topic so I guess for individuals who may not be as like clocked into kind of the, I don't know, behind the scenes drama, I guess you could say, oh. um, around this film, you know, Toby Hooper, probably most notably the director of uh, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Okay. Um, that yeah. complete masterpiece, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, it is a great film. I mean, too bad we can't get it for, for this podcast, but, or cover it, but um so he is the credited director of the film, but there have has been four decades at this point. Um, conjecture, rumor, whatever you want to say, that really Spielberg was the one who arguably was the director of the film. Like he might have even directed actual segments, scenes. If not that, he had his finger on every single part of the production that in itself could qualify. So all that being said, that's what's kind of surrounded this film. And I am very curious, Dan, like where you kind of fall with that argument. Yeah. Um, I've thought about how to phrase this a lot and I haven't really come up with anything good, but my wife actually said it perfectly. Spielberg was the showrunner of of the, you know, Mm -hmm. and then the director for people who who don't really understand the directors the main job of the director is to run the set is to, mm-hmm. is to be in charge of the crew and how the crew gets through the schedule in the day from, so it's a, it's a, it's a production job. And, um, I think, uh, I think there's some overlap or I think that when people discuss movies, there's a lot of using the word director as synonymous with author of the film. Mm-hmm. And in, 
in many cases, that's true. If you look at Scorsese or Wes Anderson or, you know, these, these larger uh, directors, Christopher Nolan, mm-hmm. there's no question yeah. that those people are the authors of their movies. But in this particular instance, I think that the, the word director really probably meant more the person who's, who was tasked with executing a creative vision in a production capacity. Yeah, no, that's very well said. And it's interesting because it's like, you know, at that, the same era, Spielberg was producing on other films like Back to the Future, Gremlins, uh, The Goonies. And I don't ever recall there being any kind of conversation around him, like that, the same kind of controversy. I don't really remember it for for this one, like uh, until you had mentioned it, like I wasn't, I wasn't aware of it, but whether... Whether he is credited as a director or not, any movie with his name attached kind of has like a Spielberg look and feel to it. Yes. Especially so I, I don't like really, yes. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. So I don't really like I wouldn't question those rumors. I would just say, yeah, yeah, okay. Do you think, Dan, out of curiosity, just because like Spielberg has relatively few writing credits? Mm. Um, I mean, I'm sure he does have his finger in a lot of projects in that manner, but like Given that this is one of his few writing credits and it's like a story by, so he really was the original, Mm. like this was his original idea. So do you think there was like a weird kind of like territorial thing going on? Like he was too busy with E.T. I think there was something contractually where he couldn't direct both at the same time. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Um, (laughs) That's a lot for anyone, even Spielberg. Um, So do you think there was like a weird kind of, well, this is still my movie. I would have wanted to direct it. Like, yes. think, I don't know if I'm being I mean, clear in my... No, I think it's... In this industry, which is a creative industry as much as a, you know, it's show business, right? Yeah. If, you, if you're part of the creation of something, then you're invested in, in uh, how it is expressed for sure. And I can't imagine that Steven Spielberg <laughs> was, was a timid guy. You know, no, no, Toby... You do what you want. I, right. <laughs> I'm just happy this little I'm... story I wrote is getting made into a, like, yeah, no, I mean, there are, there are writers who kind of like have to relinquish some control of, of what they've created in order to see that yeah. get put on film. I don't Mr. think. Mr. Spielberg, probably not one of them. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so this has happened to me on set before as a director. I'm Toby Hooper in this scenario. You set up a shot a way that you want to do something for a good reason. And then the person who is paying for it comes in and says, yeah, I don't like it. And when you're directing commercials and the client is some idiot from, uh, well, I'm not going to name names, but it's just some, (laughs) some schmuck from the middle of nowhere. I don't like when you add smoke to the shot to add a haze, the atmosphere. I don't like it. And you're like, you effing, idiot i can't imagine that toby hooper felt that when spielberg would come in and say "Mm, what if we did the shot this way instead so my understanding is that that's the collaboration that they had where Mm. you know you've got two really good filmmakers who are trying to make a movie together they both have strong opinions and i can absolutely see how anybody else on set could see could look at that scenario and say oh the director is being overridden by the producer. Sure. sure. But 
we don't really know because we weren't there on set. But right. exactly. I, I will also say Toby Hooper is not an idiot. Like if you look at Chainsaw, despite the fact that the budget is incredibly small, the filmmaking, the visual storytelling is 10 out of 10. So that guy knows how to how to tell a story. I think that it was probably just a like any creative collaboration in Hollywood. I think it's probably hard to tell who did what. Yes. And there it is. So in terms of, of like the the rumors of who may have been in more control than the other, I, I haven't, I don't know if they're out there, but I haven't really seen any stories about anyone like butting heads. So it seems like to the extent like there were like one person may have had more control than the other. It seems like they like worked well together. Yeah. I, agree. I, don't, I don't know if those stories are out there, if, if either of you have heard about that. Well, no. I mean, I, oh, go ahead. I I haven't heard anything that would rise above the normal level of like, no. ah, I wanted to do it this way. You know, it, yeah. there, Spielberg published a letter in the, in one of the trades after when the movie came out, he had given an interview in the LA times where he seized a lot of the credit as you do, you know, you talk about how great you are. I'm a genius. And, uh, that, that put fuel on the rumor fire and to sort of put it out as best he could, he, he published an open letter in one of the trades where he essentially says, we had a great collaboration. Thank you for being such a great director and being able to take input in such a unique and creative way. Which, I mean, it's kind of unfortunate that I had to get to that point for him to do that. I mean, maybe he did that because he realized that he himself contributed to the rumor mill can you imagine how that would be handled today i don't think i mean i don't think people be putting out letters about it it would be a big twitter thing it would be a big (laughs) yes be wild on reddit yep 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 someone's making a tiktok about it yep but i mean i guess i've kind of come around because i do have such an affinity for spielberg and his films and while i do recognize like what a great film uh Chainsaw Massacre is I never really quite felt that way about Toby Hooper and so <gasps> I admit that I probably was also like oh no this is and I mean it is hard like we've all admitted that like there's a certain stamp on it that feels very Spielberg ass for sure, for sure. Yeah. there is yeah I mean just the like I said the look and mm-hmm. feel like the way we talked about the neighborhood looking like this could have taken place in the same neighborhood that E.T. took place in just like the way the the, the way I don't know how to say it other than look and feel, but like there was like a style to just a house actually looking like a house that people lived in yeah, and the way that they interacted. Though I do not understand the layout of that house at all. It is, it is (laughs) like a maze game of a house. I, yeah, I realized that halfway through the movie. I'm like, wait, where? And I'm not talking about the shot where the hallway got really long. I was confused before then. Boy, do I love that shot. I, I can't tell you how many times I've rewatched that shot. My favorite thing about that shot, if you go back and look at it, is that there's no doors in that hallway. Yeah. They just yes. constructed. It's literally just a hallway where the walls go in and out so that you have a, an understanding of the depth. But mm-hmm. there's no doors. Fantastic. It is. I mean, and that circles back to what you were saying a little bit earlier in terms of what they were able to accomplish. And I mean, they got an Oscar nomination for um best special effects so that makes sense probably probably for the face probably for a lot of things um i mean probably for the the, not the tree 
the imploding house at the end is a classic. It's a, it's a, it's a milestone in terms of visual effects at the time in order to get it, they had to crank that camera up to 300 frames per second, which back then was extremely difficult to do. I think they had, they may have had to jury rig it. I know that for a similar effect in wrath of Khan, uh, star Trek two, they they had to literally jury rig a camera to be able to get up to a high enough speed. So I think it's probably something similar. But nowadays, not not such a big deal. But back right. then, a very big deal. And people don't appreciate like what it how they had to like brainstorm and troubleshoot and jerry rig and do all those things to get those effects. Like now. Things. I'm not saying it's easy. I, I can not, make this whole movie on my MacBook well, right now. Well, that's the thing. Like, I'm not. I really do not want to trivialize the very, very hard work that um, you know anybody who works in CGI or you know computerized special effects like what they do. Like, it's amazing what they do. But I got an iPhone. I got a gimbal. Let's go. Also, what I don't think people appreciate is <laughs> we're just. I'm just cracking up over here, Derek. <laughs> I don't think people appreciate nowadays the fact that they get television 24 seven because I do remember the good old days of the national anthem being played. And then the, well, did you get static or did you get the bars static? Like the, like the, like colors. No, I got static. Did you? I I think I've experienced both. This is me attempting to segue to actually talking about. (laughs) I like it. I see what you're doing. And I like it because it so doesn't work as well without the without the static, does it? <laughs> if it was bars, that would yeah. be hilarious. <laughs> you see a close encounter thing with like them each like highlighting and yeah, talking. Yeah, Carol so, Ann is trapped behind the bars. She's got her hands wrapped around them. Let me out. <laughs> so, Dion. Yes. I, I lo- like. I really. I think the reason why this film is truly one of my favorites is I just I love the story i mean i guess they could have done a much worse job with the visual effects and i think i'd still love it let's as much talk. I just... let's talk about the story that yes. is all kind of that's the main thing i'm excited to talk about by the way because if i may yeah well well first let me say i'm very glad you and we are both writers yes and we both are interested in the scripts of movies mm-hmm. and I'm, I personally, one of my all time, the thing that is for me the entry point in any scenario is the structure of a movie. Because mm-hmm. you've got your three things. You've got your story, which is just what's the, what's the general thing. Then you've got your plot, which is like, well, how do we get from A to B? And then you've got the structure, which is, well, how do we escalate these events in, in the proper order to create the emotional effect that we want? And... For me, structure is always the, the first thing that I'm interested in unpacking from a movie. And what I will do a, a lot of times for my own amusement, but also in a professional scenario, like this job that I was just on for Shudder. Oh, here comes a plug. Uh, <laughs> 101 scariest movie moments of all time on Shudder. Check Great it out. Plug. Thank you. I, it's, it was tough for me to remember the name because they changed the name on us uh, towards oh, the end. Yeah, it used to be called 101 Screams. I like that too. So much more poetic, simpler, but it's whatever. It's very visceral. 
it's not my job to second guess the AMC plus marketing department. So I won't, sure. but, uh, when I was working on that show, a lot of times what we would have to do to condense these um, movies into digestible three to four minute form is you go through, you, you, you import the movie into Premiere or whatever editing software you're using, and you go through and you set your locators for like, oh, this happens here, that happens there. And then you've, you've got a roadmap of what you're going to use to create your little segment. So on a lot of these movies, I would step through and just figure out how many acts does this have? Mm, is this okay. is this a three act movie or a five act movie? Is it seven? Who knows? I don't know how many chapters it has. The Babadook has like ugh, one one act. Uh, but I'm I'm digressing. The Babadook, one of the greatest movies ever made, by the way. <laughs> so that with Poulter, <laughs> oh my, that's one of the things that makes it so genius, right? Is that you're like kill that kid, but then you feel <laughs> bad about it. But then she wants to, and then you're kind of like on her side, but at the same time, you, okay, d- digressing. With Poltergeist, in preparation for this podcast, I went through and I did the same process um, of stepping through and putting in my locators of where the act breaks were. And I'm here to report to you some interesting findings. I love it. Please proceed. Yeah, I'm like, okay. I'm literally on the edge of my seat because I, I love this stuff. Um, Anna, are you a, an act, are you a three-act person or a five-act person? I, I mean, honestly, I'm probably pretty traditional in being a three-act person. My wife is a three-act person. And yet somehow we make it work. I know, it's like, <laughs> is that a deal breaker? <laughs> It's probably been the largest point of contention we've ever had. Because I bang on and on about the. I first became a convert to the five-act structure because I wrote a screenplay that adapted Macbeth by William Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and that's five acts. And in order to... I, I made a horrible mistake when I first started trying to adapt it, which is I thought, well, I'm going to make a movie, so I should make it three acts like movies or three acts. You can't, it didn't work. It was only once I started to accept that William Shakespeare, who probably knows more about writing than I do, had a reason for making it five acts. I don't know. I can't even hardly understand what that guy says. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was only once I committed to understanding how a five act structure works that I started to make progress with that adaptation. Um, And so that was what converted me to the five act structure. And the simple way that I would classify the five act structure is that act one is set up, act two is escalation, act mm-hmm. three is payoff, then mm-hmm. act four is another escalation, and then mm-hmm. act five is double payoff. Yep, I see exactly where you're going with this. Double payoff. Yep, yep you're right. Yeah. Yep, the movie That's is twice five. the payoff. How can you not like that? <laughs> right? I see. You just exactly. told me. You sold me. I'm a five act person now. But yes. <laughs> You don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> Nevertheless. <laughs> but you are you are absolutely correct. As you were laying that all out, I knew exactly what you were referring to in terms yeah. of each act of this film. Yep. Yeah. And that actually is what makes it really interesting with the fourth and fifth act. Yes. It it, it makes it really interesting. Um so just to, co- just to complete the, the report of the findings, when I went through, I didn't say to myself ahead of time, I'm going to make this a five act. I'm going to, you know, 
I just said, I'm going to see where the act breaks land. And then I'm just going to put down a marker and then I'll count them up at the end. Yeah, it's five. And so act one, your setup act is 24 and a half minutes. It ends with her reporting. It's, it ends with the scene where the, the ghosts come out of the TV, zip into the wall. The fa- there's an earthquake. Family wakes up. They look at Carol Ann. Carol Ann says. They're here. <laughs> they're, she says here. they're here. Did I take that away from you? Were you, no, were no, you no. causing for I, dramatic effect? Or? <laughs> I, was, I was setting you up. I was giving oh, you the alley. <laughs> and then Hannah's like, they're here. <laughs> Obviously not an actor. <laughs> so that's your first 24 and a half minutes. Now, here's the, here's the really interesting thing. So we've ended the act on that TV moment, right? The next act, which is the escalation act, it builds, to, there's that misdirect of like, maybe the tree's going to eat the little boy, but no, what's really happening is that they're isolating Carol Ann so that they can yeah. kidnap her. How does that act end? It ends with the revelation that they can hear her through the TV and the mom puts her hand on the television set yeah. screen. Boom. Um, and then you're into act three, which is, um, I think that in what I called it before, setup escalation payoff, right? So the payoff is, okay, we're haunted by ghosts. It's scary. We got to bring in some professionals. And the first thing that we cut to essentially is the, the Ghostbusters. Yes. And, yeah. And everybody's trying to figure out what the hell's going on. And this act ends with the, the videotape sequence where the, the, the ghost lady comes down the stairs. The music is going big time. They rewind the tape and they see all these hundreds of ghosts. And the little boy says, where are they coming from? The mom yeah. says, I don't know. Because the next act is going to answer that question. Boom. We kick into act four, which is another escalation. Um, Stephen, the dad, learns that all 300 acres of Cuesta Verde are built over a quote-unquote relocated cemetery. Um, so we're, we're starting to get answers to these questions. But also they got to rescue Carol Ann. They go through this huge event as a family and they come out stronger on the other side that mom and dad kiss right before she goes into the closet, which is like, yeah, it's getting me emotional just thinking about it. I know. And then Zelda Rubenstein, the great, we haven't even talked about Zelda Rubenstein, the greatest. She says. She was perfectly cast for this role. It's perfect. It's perfect. She says very proudly, this has is clean and that's the end right (laughs) movie's over now we're into act five epilogue or as mr william shakespeare would say payoff payoff double payoff where you get this final roller coaster of just madness and uh that's it that's the structure well okay can i because i mean look there's so 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 much great stuff to cover i have to ask really quickly though Given that Zelda Rubenstein or Tangina, um, they, I don't think they ever do they ever say her character name. In I think they. Do. I don't know. They must. Um, I I have to ask. Like, I'm not trying to dif- like discredit her, but that house was not clean. <laughs> that house was <laughs> it not wasn't. Clean. <laughs> it wasn't. That was dirty as shit. That was like really messy. So yeah. Okay. So what is what do you think? Do you think? that there was some kind of temporary absence 
of the poltergeist or do you think that like she just they were like hiding i i don't know why do you think she was so confident yes. that the house was clean it's a good question and i think that the answer is unresolvable in the fiction of the story because i think yeah. that what yeah. really happened was that they said and then there's act 5 so in order to get to act 5 you want to have a fake out ending and therefore let's give her a line that says this is over sure so, yeah. okay i don't i, I Basically, I understand your confusion because I feel the same way. I think that yeah. there, I think there's no way to resolve it other than to say that they just gave her a line to make it seem like sure. the movie was over. Well, okay, so I'm kind of wanting to jump back to when you said that, like, you were very young upon seeing this for the first time, and in terms of watching a movie where it is a very young child who is like you said, kidnapped and yes, we don't really then see her. And I think maybe as a child audience member, maybe you're not then still thinking about the fact that this little girl has been like taken away by the spirit world. But what was there any kind of, cause I think that's why this movie made such an impact on me. Cause I also saw it very young. And I think part of why the story still resonates with me is because of seeing it myself as a little girl and seeing what happened to Carol Ann. So you identified with Carol Ann. I, yeah, I think, I think it's the first time that I saw anything in the horror realm where something bad was happening to a little kid. That's fair. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. 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 Well, this is one of the many, many, many genius things about the movie. In my opinion, every, Everybody in a family has a, an identification character in that film. Yeah. Whether it's a little girl, a little boy, a teenager, a mom, or a dad. Everybody, everybody's going through this thing. Mm-hmm. And they're all going through it together, which is another great thing about it. Not to go on a tangent here. To me, one of the reasons it's a perfect horror movie is because the thesis the thesis of any horror movie is that things are going wrong. Mm-hmm. And then this one resolves it with the way that this one resolves that premise is we get through it as a family. Hmm. It's yeah. perfect. Like, it's perfect. They, they work as a family to get through it. The dad holds the rope. She goes through the club. Don't let go. He says, never, you know, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, so, okay. I've gone on a tangent here, but you got an audience no. identification character for everybody and everybody gets really their little moment. Looking at it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am quite, thank you. Um, <laughs> but like the little, the little boy gets eaten by the tree. He has to deal with this scary, clown doll the little girl gets sucked into the you know and then the teenager kind of i've always found that a little odd her role in the narrative i think is just to be maybe she's just the clown character she uh, not the clown doll sorry maybe she's just the comedic runner in the background because Mm -hmm. this sort of background story of her being sexually active is is sort of seeded in you know like when uh, she's in act five, when she's talking about when the mom is like, we're going to meet up at the motel. 
And the daughter says, oh, yeah, I remember that place. Yeah. And it's like, wait, what? And then she, <laughs> and then she comes back from, the, from her date with, a, with an enormous hickey on her neck. And I, I think love that, that. It's, it's a really interesting sub story that's happening in the background of the main story. Uh, but, you know, whatever. She gets her teenager stuff. And then the mom and the dad get each. They, they have so many moments each. And most notably, perhaps not uncommon for the horror genre, which has a higher preponderance of female protagonists than any other genre, I think. But hmm. the, mo- the mom is ultimately the protagonist of the film. Mm-hmm. And you, I think it's very rare that you see mom protagonists in movies. I agree with you. I mean, she's the one that, that jumped through to get Carol Ann. She's the one who got them both again. Yeah. yeah. And After she's running down the uh, five mile hallway. <laughs> and ultimately she's the one who's really the focus of, of the movie. Oh, Steven's mm-hmm. the dad, the biggest, which by the way, the dad is named Steven. Steven Spielberg is the, he wrote this final drill. Like what's going on there? But whatever. <laughs> you know what that's, so I've never had a character with my name. Never thought of that. I hadn't thought of that. I've yeah. never have. Have you, Dan? Not to no no judgment, but like, have you uh, ever named yeah, a major well, character, once, Dan? Well, yeah, in my early twenties, <laughs> in my early twenties, <laughs> I did. But I have a really funny story. There's a um, when they were making the movie Goldeneye, which was the first time James Bond was coming back after like a seven year hiatus or whatever. They brought in a number of um, screenwriters to take a crack at the yeah, and they just kept throwing screenwriters at the um, at the script until it eventually got good. So on Goldeneye, they, they brought in the succession of writers to just take a crack at it for like a, a week or a month or however long it was. And one of the writers, I believe, was a writer named Jack Wade. And what he did, knowing that he wasn't going to get final credit on the script, is he just named one of the characters Jack Wade. So Joe Don that. Baker. Yeah, it's great, right? It's great. <laughs> the... the the CIA character that James Bond interacts with is named after the guy who wrote that character. I love that so much. I think Pretty that good. like, I feel like writers don't get a lot of wins. <laughs> and, and so I think that for him to do that and they didn't, nobody thought to change. Like, that's amazing. That's so. It's good. also, you're handing in a draft to your bosses that has your, one of the characters is named after you. There's no way they're not going to spot it. That's what I would think. Yeah. I like to think that some of the people who assisted with the writing on this, that someone was named Neighbor, because there are a lot of characters just called Neighbor. neighbor. <laughs> All the well, Neighbor getting, stuff is great, too. Getting back to what you were saying about Diane really being the protagonist, like, I'm, yes. I'm fascinated by her character. I mean, something about, like, I just, I you know, you were talking about, like, getting through this as a family. There was a definite chemistry between every single person and that like i believed that was a family so much yeah yeah um just the way they engaged with each other like the way the kids acted with each other at the kitchen table before they had to go off to school just the way that the way that they were cracking up when they talked to their neighbors after yes yes like yes. So funny. there was like <laughs> it just every everything with them everything. i loved but ben diane in particular <laughs> she's she's so interesting to me because her first response to under well she even talks about it before there's really an incident um 
I mean, yes, I guess you could say like the first incident is is Carol Ann even talking to the TV for the first time. And off that, Diane starts talking about how, oh, I think she takes after me. Yeah. And like starts alluding to yeah. there being a family trait yeah. of like under working with or acknowledging the parent, like supernatural. Hmm. So when though real, real incidents start happening, like the, the table or the chairs moving and all that, she's not scared. Right. She's, she's, she's excited. Yeah. Which is very wholesome. It's yeah. a, but it's also a great choice for from as a screen as a screenwriter whoever made that choice and there were a lot of I looked into not to go off on another tangent a lot of people took a crack at this script as well. Mm, okay. Um but whoever it was who in the process seeded that in was really good at their job because when you're watching a movie you want your protagonist to to uh, okay, I, how far do I go into my own personal philosophy here? <laughs> do it. A, go all the way. All the way. <laughs> horror movies are about life and death, which is going to win. And you want your protagonists to be to represent the forces of life because they're going up against the forces of death. And Diane is a, a vivacious she had mm-hmm. she represents this life force of excite she's excited by this phenomena that's going on and you can rationalize it however you want you can say well she's a suburban mom maybe she doesn't have that much exciting stuff going on in her life so naturally but regardless of what the um intent or the justification was the emotional reaction that you have as a viewer when you see how excited she is is it makes you like her more it makes mm-hmm. you excited in the same way that she's excited by that chair scene. And you're kind of, it gives you more of a reason to root for her and for the family. Mm-hmm. Cause there was nothing really like sinister about that stuff. You could, depending on how they, I guess, portrayed it, you well, could. Tweety did die. Well, they so, killed Tweety. True. Well, did they kill Tweety or was this May- entire maybe. movie about Tweety haunting them? <laughs> Is Tweety what's behind all of this? Yeah. <laughs> Tweety dies and is like, look, all you skeletons under the ground. You know, you know, Tangina does say that there is a beast that is, t- yes. you know, maybe it's yes. an animal force. Well, I mean, I, I think that the point you made about, well, and I know this might have come across as just like a minor thing that you were saying, but I actually really, um, latched on to what you mentioned about her being a suburban housewife. Mm-hmm. And I think that if I may just say, I, this is a little bit neither here nor there, but while it's on my mind, one thing I really appreciated about this film is yes, in some ways it's a very kind of traditional um, marriage and that she does stay home with the kids and Steve goes off to work and he's the breadwinner. But I looked at this relationship as actually a really healthy relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like it, there's really like, yes, he does come home. Like when she shows him the fact that the chair can move and he's completely <laughs> wigged out. He is. Yeah. It, he's mind blown. Mind yeah. blown. And yeah. he says, nobody's going to the kitchen. Nobody's. Yeah. Yes. I know that that can maybe be perceived as this like authoritarian, but, but it, I didn't take it that thing. It, it's like a dad thing. And like, it's, it, 
yes, he's trying to protect his family, but it's not like, like even that, you know, some of those things I think if taken out of context could be like, oh, he's like kind of being domineering in that moment. I didn't take it that way. And I just, as a whole, like they have a great communication yeah, between the two of them. They have, yeah, they have fun together. I loved him sucking in his gut and then letting it go. <laughs> yeah. It's the greatest. Like, <laughs> and I just. You, you instantly oh, fall in love with that, that scene where, and I love, okay, uh, let me back up. The visual, st- I'm always such a fan of visual storytelling. And I always, because I'm a rewinder, I always like to see how they transition from one idea to another in a movie. And the scene where we fall in love with them as a couple mm-hmm. is preceded by the last thing before we get to that scene is them firm is her firmly closing the door on the kids. Like guys yes. <laughs> go the go the hell to sleep. <laughs> it's mom and dad time now. <laughs> and then you you got this beautiful little scene executed in one beautiful little camera move where the camera comes around the bed and because of that it takes place in real time and we get to just see the chemistry between the actors but everything yeah. in that is just it makes us fall in love with them she's smoking pot he's trying to roll can't do it honey you do it i can't do it <laughs> you know <laughs> and then he's reading the book about the man the the president and then jumps off the bed she's making she's having a good time laughing They're, he's having a good time making her laugh he sucks in it it's all great and it's all recognizable for yeah as it's we've all been in situations like that so yeah it's really great and to your point about her like it being so rare for there to really be a true female protagonist like when when shit gets real and you know they're figuring out how to you know get Carol Ann back like yes there's a little bit of back and forth with them there there always is like even when um I guess when like that first kind of blast of supernatural like like basically pushes them all to the ground and in, initially Steve's like okay everybody's leaving this house and she's like no I'm not I'm not leaving without Carol Ann like he defers and so, like he understands like he's not going to win that argument oh yeah and- yeah we, we should say for our kid good call good call <laughs> <laughs> we'll stay and then Again, when they are like then moments away from having somebody go in to get her, you know, she like, again, there's, I think he, if I'm remembering correctly, like he offers up himself, but then she's like, no, because who else is going to be strong enough to hold on to the rope, which he, he lets go of anyway. You know who it's not going to (laughs) be? It's not going to be those damn neighbors. They would have been of no help. <laughs> Is there something about the neighbors that you want to talk about? Because let's talk about I just, the neighbors. I just, I love how how she's like pleading for their help, yeah. and they look up and they're like, "Uh, uh-uh. yeah, we're 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 out of here. We're not helping." Yeah. yeah, I mean, they help as much as neighbors need to help. They get her out of the pool. That's true. You know, that's true. But I find the neighbors really interesting. All that setup of the neighbors is so funny. They're always set up. There's this uh, sort of uh, writing technique that I like to think of called uh, death of the clown. This is how I categorize it in my mind, which is that you, rule of threes, the first time you see a character, they're funny. The second time you see a character, they're funny. The third time you see the character, it's dramatic or it's sad or it's tragic. And Mm. the it has a different emotional um, impact because of how you've fooled the audience into thinking of these characters. So if a, if a clown character dies and the fight club is the example that uh, I got, 
I first got this from because Fincher talks about it on the commentary track. The meatloaf character in Fight Club is the clown character. Oh, and so when, yeah. when he died, his name was Robert Paulson. You feel really much more sad than if it was one of the other people. Similar to this, the neighbors are, are every time we see the neighbor, it's a comedic setup. And then at the end, their function in the narrative is to save her. And like you get a different, it's like an umami, an emotional umami, I guess, Mm -hmm. when the clown character actually does something dramatic. Yeah. No, I, that's such an interesting take. I love that. Yeah. I forgot they do. They do pull her out of the, uh, boy, that pool is nothing but problems. I think if it weren't for the wife, (laughs) he would have gone in with her. The wife. Yeah. No, I think so. Was, was really, I think the The neighbor wife, the neighbor wife. Similar to the, uh, the driver, the driver's wife in Back to the Future when Marty's looking for help. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those those damn wives. Yeah. <laughs> wives are the worst. Um, I but... disagree. <laughs> I disagree strongly as well. Well said. Good. <laughs> well, so with, okay. What This is going to be like I a want... two-hour episode because there's so oh, much sure. to talk about. We haven't. We still haven't really talked about Tangina. Well, let's do it right now. We can. Well, we can I, have, I want to follow I mean, up. What you you were going down a path, and I I I interrupt. Oh no! Oh, you know what? I just no. I'm going to interrupt one more time. I have one more because <laughs> this is on topic to both of the last two things we just discussed: the relationship between Steve and Diane and the neighbors. There is yes. one moment where. When they go and the mosquitoes, that scene, you know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ben, have you noticed anything odd? I love their dynamic in that scene because it's clear right at the be- the sort of, to me, the game of that scene is, well, there's a lot of games in that scene. To me, the funniest thing about that scene is that Steve starts to mansplain. He, she starts to like, let me see how to get into this in a way that doesn't make these people think I'm crazy. And then he's like, no, nah, I got this, you know? And he puts his, <laughs> he puts his hand out. He does. Does like, he? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, like, I got this. And then he bungles it. And then she is like, all right, I'm just going to, all right, here we go. And then, you know, she, what was, what I loved about that scene was that, again, it's a very familiar scenario to me <laughs> where, like, I'm like, no, no, no. I got this. Let me just mansplain. And then I bungle it. And then it, like the, in comes the cleanup crew, my wife, to sort of try to make sense out of my rambling. So I love that. <laughs> and I love, and I love the escalation that it, 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 that that scene achieves for the relationship with the neighbors. Cause it's so funny watching it. You know that the neighbors are like, these people are fucked up on drugs. <laughs> he really, yeah. The, his, like just the, he doesn't say anything. Ben doesn't say anything, but his, the, the response on his face is a true kind of concern that something's very, very wrong with them. Coupled yeah. with and, like just an animosity towards this neighbor that he doesn't really like. And then of course you have just like the complete lack of anything in his kid. The kid, oh, God, he's the kid. like Gustus scoop. Yeah. yeah. Like that's what he reminds me of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't the know. Dad. Funny. I don't know, Dad. <laughs> he doesn't know. Um, and, the, and also this tiny little detail of 
I've never been bitten. I don't know if anybody in my family has ever been bitten by yeah. a mosquito. Yeah. <laughs> I love that that's like the weird rant he goes on where it it really didn't have to go that far. <laughs> but It's a great I, movie. It's a great movie. And I mean, one thing that I brought up at the very top of our conversation that I, I did want to get to is – you know, we've kind of here and there talked about like the neighbors or the look of the neighborhood. And when we first started, I mentioned E.T. And not only did we talk about it with you, but again, there's been kind of this like comparison. I think I, you know, try to decipher from stuff I read online. I'm trying not to say grain of salt, but it's really not <laughs> really not another way to do it. Um but I, I have read that Spielberg did kind of look at them as companion pieces, mm-hmm. whereas E.T. is somewhat the, like, suburban dream, and then Poltergeist is the suburban nightmare. Mm-hmm. And I really like their house in, in Poltergeist. It, you know, looks like a great great house. I'm not really sure. Again, the exterior of it? Yeah. 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 It's, cool. it's a really cool design. Yeah. I like so, that. I like that weird windy staircase. Yes. With, and then With the a tree, tree? inside. With a tree. Like, who has a tree? I did not clock that there's a tree in that house. There's a tree in there's the house. There's a tree in the house. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. It's wild. And it doesn't just... look like it's doing that great. It's, like, severely... Well, like, there's a lot of stuff going on in bent there. ...bent over, yeah. but um, it's wild that it's there. It's the good tree, as opposed to the, the evil child-eating That's true. tree. That's true. So, Dan, you know, given that you've been on the show for both of these movies and obviously like really love both of them and have done a a good amount of like research into them. How does that, like, does that work for you? Do you see it that way? Do you see these two movies as just different sides of the same coin? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that every artist has periods where they're interested in certain things. And this was clearly Spielberg's suburban period. Mm-hmm. Close Encounters is also in there. And yeah. I, yeah. I think I might've said this the last time I was on the show. I think that we all collectively, the, the world feels that there's something special about that period of, of Spielberg. Um, there's a, when he was writing Close Encounters, at, at one point he brought on Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver. Oh wow! Apparently not a good fit. Didn't see that. Didn't last. But there was an the the op, the story is that there was an argument between the two of them where they were trying to figure out who this protagonist is going to be the the um, the Richard Dreyfus character, and Schrader said something along the lines of I don't. I don't want the person who makes contact with an alien civilization to be a guy who eats at McDonald's. And Spielberg said, that's exactly what I do want. And yeah. like, yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the, that's, I, I find that sort of like the key for, for the suburban era of the Spielberg, the really magical Spielberg movies is that they weren't aimed at a, the audience that they were aimed at was suburban suburbanites just people i can relate to a guy going people. to mcdonald's <laughs> you can yeah. and yeah. when you watch these movies you we've been saying it for the last 10 minutes you relate to these characters 
And I think that that's just the zone to answer your question. Anna. I think that was just the yeah. zone that he was in creatively at the time before he aged out of it or, or budgeted out of it or whatever, however you want to phrase it. At a certain point, he stopped. He lost interest in that maybe when he got too mm. rich. But <laughs> is there such a thing? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, but I, I love one of the yeah. things I love about both the movies is that quality. And it is something that I try to bring into my writing, the script that I'm writing right now. I, I've taken a lot of pains, and I think consciously because of uh, E.T. and our discussion about it. It was one of the things that really made it clear to me, like, this might be something that will help the script, is to really take pains not to, when you're writing about fictional characters, it's easy to let the story or the plot dictate sort of their circumstances. But on this current one, I've been like, no, I'm going to start with suburban as a, as a locate, as a setting. And I'm going to make sure that the story and the plot fits with that first and foremost so that it has that relatability well said yeah fingers crossed i mean i think i think while maybe there is something unique about this area era even in some of the later not relatively speaking years i still found that i related very well to some of those dinosaurs in jurassic park (laughs) (laughs) tell me more (laughs) I want to hear more about that. Bad. <laughs> I mean, the Velociraptors trying to get to the ice cream. I, uh-huh. That really touched me personally. That's a very relatable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. We definitely should talk about Tangina. We need to. Yes. I, I think that, I mean, first of all, I love the story behind Zelda Rubenstein. Um, is it Steen or Stein? Boy. Zelda. It's Zelda. Zelda. Okay, fair enough. So this was a woman who, for the first half of her life, worked in, I want to say, the medical field and did pretty well for herself doing what she was doing, but it wasn't, like, really creatively challenging to her. Hmm. And she just decided at, like, 45 to try acting and did quite well considering that that's like when, and I hate to say this, when a lot of careers are over for women. Mm. Um, I mean, she obviously had a very unique um, aesthetic. Mm. She walks in and, and everyone's she attention own, is she on She owns yeah. space. She like, does. As soon as she walks in. She owns. And... Inaccuracies be damned. <laughs> what were you saying, Dan? She owns every frame of the movie yes. from the moment that she comes in. Because, yeah, I absolutely. Anyone who's seen it w- can tell you she's 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 a presence. She is a presence. And the glasses are a presence. The glasses and, and are a presence. I love her style. Her style is actually. Mm-hmm. I love her dress. It's on point. It's on point. Um, and. I'm always, so a lot of people, if they bring up monologues, famous monologues, like maybe at least one of the ones that they'll bring up, another Spielberg movie, but um, when Quint is giving his uh, USS. <laughs> Never put on a life yeah, jacket again. Indianapolis. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's a, that's a great monologue, extremely memorable. I'm just as captivated when she, you know, has Diane come down on one knee because she's too tall for her and starts telling her this is what's happening in your home yeah i am just 
like hanging on every word. Like I, I, I'm at this point probably not saying anything too, um, too meaningful other than I just, I love every single second of her in this movie. I also do. One of my favorite lines from hers is when she's talking about the souls, uh, for whatever reason, I'm not at rest. I'm also not aware that they have passed on. They linger in a perpetual dream state, a nightmare from which they cannot awake. It's like, wow, you know? Well the, done, Dan. Oh, well, thank you. But <laughs> the dialogue is so beautiful, and then you yes. hand it to Zelda Rubenstein to say it? Forget about it. You're, yep. you're home free. Totally agree with you. And... She does have, you know, considering that at this point, this family's at their wits' ends, the experts that they came to have even admitted this is, like, far outside of their expertise mm-hmm. of, of what they've experienced in the past. And so this is it. This is, like, their their last chance to get their daughter. And yeah. In fact, she says, now, let's go get your daughter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's great one-liners. Also, you know, looking at those at those quotes from Tangina, we were talking before about why she would have thought it was clean. And so when she's talking to Diane, she's talking about kind of like two, she's talking about all the spirits, but then she says, there's one more thing. Yep. Yeah. Terrible presence is in here. Worth it. So it's possible that like they cleaned out all the other spirits, but this nefarious one somehow was able to hide. Well, I would say that... Because that's all that was left was the beast, right? That Yeah, that? and to me, that, that essentially means, like, the devil. Yeah. Like, that's how I interpreted that. If you call something the beast, you're calling it the devil, Satan, whatever you want to refer to it as. Yeah. And that is the terrifying part, is I think, yes, there's been enough moments in the film to recognize that something nefarious is there, I would say I would say there are signs of this, but but I would say that up to this point, <laughs> what are those folks, signs? <laughs> well, like you know, um, them getting blasted back, um, the whole face ripping the, off. Yeah, thing. so yeah. I don't know. Something. I'm uh, I'm not sold. <laughs> oh oh, I, I have one quick but, question. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I have one question about the face ripping off and what preceded that. How many times would you be like, okay? I, I have this job to do. I'm a oh, ghost yeah. ghost hunter guy. <laughs> I'm gonna be at this person's I'm house. Just clear out their fridge. I'm just gonna make a. <laughs> I'm just gonna make a steak. Hey, I'm gonna go make a steak right now. In the middle of the night. Yeah. <laughs> this is another. Uh, not to bring it back to Shakespeare, my obsession. But sure. This, when sure. I adapted Shakespeare, when I adapted Shakespeare, I learned there were a couple lessons that I learned, wh- which I'm so grateful for. But the one of them is that if you make a it doesn't matter what the character's alignment is in the narrative, if they're good or bad. If you make them personally annoying, then the audience kind of roots for them to go down. Um, in Macbeth, the reason that that's important is because your protagonist is a bad guy. And how do you get the audience to root for the bad guy is that you make the good guys really annoying. So mm-hmm. just, you know, when whenever there's a scene with the good guys, they're just, they kind of... They're just lame. They're, they're doing the right thing, but you just don't like their personalities. And I think similar here, this is the guy, his his function in the plot, in the narrative of, of the movie, is to essentially be like, I'm out of here. This is beyond me. I'm the professional, and I can't handle this. 
and that's what kicks you into the next act where like just like you said anna like now we're really in the shit yeah if, if, if even the professionals can't handle it we're in bad shape but in order to keep it fun for the audience we make that good guy suck we make him suck by eating the family's food and therefore we're kind of glad when he rips his own face off and 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 <laughs> and fucks off <laughs> Which he, d- also, he does yeah he's like i'm is it like normal to just have a steak uncovered in the fridge i don't eat beef so i don't and i haven't for a really long time so i just don't know if, like would I'm you have it in a wrapper with just having like a steak on a plate right, in the fridge right that's not how i would have stored it <laughs> <laughs> that's that's another question you know maybe yeah. they had other things on their mind yeah, they, maybe they were distracted point. i don't know i think it's weird it's odd one, one fun fact about marty so first of all, his two actually, his real name is Martin. So they just kind of called him his name. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if he really um, was like focused so much on an acting career per se. Like usually we go through these on our own. But I had to note that he actually was Spielberg's assistant hmm. on Raiders. <sighs> so I'm wondering if they just kind of threw him, threw him this role. That's interesting. Yeah. He's like, hey, can I have a part in this? Sure, it'll melt your face off. Cool. Nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's good. But you know what we've done is we went off on a tangent, and now we have to loop back to Anna's original, um, where you were originally going. Was oh, I no, talking about Tangina still? <laughs> I mean, look, the title of oh, this yes. podcast is Amy's yeah. Movie Tangent. So. All to say, look, all to say that, yes, there certainly were allusions to like an evil presence in the house, but I think you are certainly heightening the stakes when you say, no, you actually have the devil in your home. Yeah. And I like, I agree with you. That's, I think that's the interpretation, but I appreciate the ambiguity. Me too. Uh, They could have just said, it's the, it's the devil. Yeah. But instead, let's say you don't believe in the devil. You can still recognize we're in, we're in deep shit here. Absolutely. And I think that, yeah. I'm really cursing up a storm on your guys' podcast. Oh, it's fine. Everything's smart, explicit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We can can beep it out if... (laughs) That would be hilarious. (laughs) 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 But yeah, I'll just say that in a film where... Because like, I think maybe a nice little jumping off point is to more focused, in a more focused way, talk about, um, is it Dr. Lesh? Yeah, Dr. Lesh and her team. Oh yeah, um, what's up with Dr. Lesh? It's a, it's a it is a testament to Zelda Rubinstein that we that people don't even remember Dr. Lesh, I think. You know, right. it's like the person you right. remember is Zelda Rubinstein. And yes. then it's like, "Oh yeah, these people are in it as well." Yep. Because what I was going to say is just that like I think that the cast is pretty stacked. Um we can we can kind of move over um because one thing that, like, I guess is a little bit of an asterisk to that is, you know, earlier when you were talking about the role of Dana in in the film and what what she provides, I do kind of agree that, I don't know if it was, like, like you said, a little bit of comic relief. Um, I, I think that, like, there's an argument to be made. And, like, look, I this, this podcast isn't about Poltergeist 2. But they just, and for for unfortunate, very unfortunate reasons, yeah. they just um, pretend as if the character of Dana uh, is no longer 
part or I think Poltergeist three, she's just no longer part of the narrative. And Poltergeist two, I think they like say she's off to college. I forgot there was a three. Um, there's like a four, the, I think. A series, like I mean, it's a franchise remake. Ugh. Um, but you know, it's because Dominic Dunn was murdered, um, by her boyfriend just several months after ex boyfriend, several months after this film came out. Um, all to say, like, it's not to disparage, um, that actress. I, I've always kind of wavered on whether or not that character was like necessary for, for the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that aside, I think every single person in this film is just like phenomenal at bringing to their character. I mean, I've already been gushing about just how much I love watching everybody. And yeah, I think you're right. Tangina, she is such a dynamic character that sometimes people forget about Dr. Lash. Who was also like pretty amazing, but she's kind she's of Oscar like... Oscar winner. Yeah. She she was like a, a really great starting pitcher, but, <laughs> you know, Tangina came in and closed it out. So yeah, I mean, I do really enjoy the conversation that the, the two women have. It's, yes. It, it's very much a like, let's talk as women now. Mm-hmm. It's woman to woman. You and I are going to talk about that. We're going to share my flask and we're going to get down to it. And it's great. And again, like you said, not to take anything away from it. It's just that it's so overshadowed by the six minutes or however long Zelda Rubenstein is in the movie that you kind of forget about it. Mm -hmm. Yep. But I love that Dr. Lesh and her team. First of all, I got to say like not to, um, hammer home this too much, but like, I love that there's this strong female protagonist. I love that there's this like healthy dynamic between her and her husband. And I love that this team is led by a woman. Yeah. You know, um, that's just another little, little minor thing. That's like really not so minor. It's kind of a cool thing for a 1982 movie. Well, I I had the same thought that I'm like, this movie is so organically female centric. It Mm -hmm. like, it seems to not even really be thinking about it. You don't get yes. the sense that they're like, oh, we got to compared to nowadays. And I'm like, yeah, wait, were things more progressive back then? I, it seems it seems like this was more of a no brainer than it would yep. be today. Yep. And actually, I feel like that has come up at times in the it, podcast. It, yeah, it has. And I don't I don't really know the answer to that, because I think off the top of my head, I want to say, no, things we're not more progressive then, but also those decisions, I don't, I don't know how they were made then as compared to today, but you're right that those roles like in this movie or like an alien, for example, right. they were just, they, they just were mm-hmm. and they were great, mm-hmm. but it, you see and feel a difference. And I don't know if that's because now there's like a sense that, there is a need to bring the attention to exactly like what and why we, we are doing this and why right. we feel we have to. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it is really interesting. I think what, what really attracts me to the film for all these different reasons that we're bringing up is just the, just, it's so, it seems so natural. Like it seems like you said, Dan, just kind of yes. like a gimme that, mm-hmm. that this is the way it's set up. And I love, like when you were talking about the conversation between Diane and Lesh just little, really little things that like were unexpected, but brings a, like an intimacy. Um, you know, you mentioned that like, you know, I love that Lush kind of has this, just this flask on her. <laughs> and, Lush the and, Lush. Yeah. And it <laughs> like shares it with Diane. And then like the next morning, 
I, she, you know, she, Diane must have held on to it because she uh-huh. like shows her that now it's empty. Um, I just love, love that so yeah. much. There's lots yeah. of really great character stuff in it. A lot mm-hmm. of really well-observed tiny human character moments of the same kind that we see in, in Jaws. I, the, my, mm-hmm. one of my fa- all-time favorite moments in Jaws is when, did I talk about this? I think I did talk about this in E.T., Spielberg used to be so focused on those these little moments, like you say, of human behavior, whether it's Stephen tying his tie and realizing that he's got the phone cord in his tie, mm-hmm. or in Jaws when Roy Scheider is really feeling bad because the, the, the Kittner boy's mom slapped him, and he's at the dinner table, and he realizes that his son is mimicking, the, and they have that little moment. Mm-hmm. That used to be a real hallmark of Spielberg, and I—it's part of that part of this era of the kind of movies he was making that that kind of stuff would show up a lot. It's really good. It is—it's phenomenal, and that's the kind of stuff that I just like hang on to. I just—I can't get enough of it. But mm. one character that we have not talked about yet is Mr. Teague, and you sparked that for me because. I personally feel like he shares a lot of similarities um, with, oh my gosh, what's his name? With the mayor Um, from Jaws? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much with Vaughn. 100%. You're right. And I'm I'm curious because like. Only if the mayor had actually stocked that beach with sharks. (laughs) That would make him closer. (laughs) But. So do you think of Teague as like a traditional villain or like where, where do you fall on, on your feelings on him? Um, yeah, I think he is a pretty traditional villain. And I, I think okay. his, I, one of the things I appreciate, uh, appreciate about him is that his function, the narrative is to be a one dimensional character, as opposed to everything else we've just been saying. All the good guys, for lack of a better uh, phrase, have get these moments where they're like, oh, they're human beings. And that's not his job in the movie. His job is to show up and suck. And he does it. <laughs> he does Pretty quickly, well. you know, from his introduction where he's like, ah, oh, you put a 300 watt light bulb in it. And then, yeah, <laughs> this can all be yours, kid. You know, it's, he's just, he's a, he's a mustache twirler. And then at the end, he's the person, you want to see somebody get knocked down by the house. And that's what right. happens. You know, he's, they take off, they're out of there. Thank goodness they're safe, but we still need somebody to stay behind and watch the house get uh, evaporated. And when it does, they zap him and he gets knocked down. And it's like, yeah. And that kind of punch, punch your fist in the air moment, I think only works if he's a one dimensional villain. Yeah. That, that like blast that knocks him down. I don't know why it just reminded me of, like a ton of melted marshmallow dropping on the EPA guy in oh, Ghostbusters. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Give me like similar uh-huh. energy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Dan, this has been amazing. <laughs> I had this a great time. Incredible. If it was possible to top your last appearance, I think this might be it. Oh, um, it, it. We, we just love talking to you. We love talking about movies. We love hearing your insights. You are truly one of the most, like reflective and just 
thoughtful individuals in terms of how you look at film and storytelling. And it's just always a joy getting to listen to your observations on this movie or any other. It's fun to talk about this stuff because when I'm actually watching these movies, I'm such a rewinder and fast forwarder. Nobody would ever want to have that experience with me. So it's nice to just do the after. Sarah, when you mentioned that, do you rewinder? Yeah, there's like a rule in the house, like, okay, we've now, we've reached the limit of number, we've rewound enough, we've watched that transition literally four times, we don't need to watch it a fifth. Time to move on, yeah. time to move on. But I get crazy about that stuff, I just, I, I love unpacking how movies work, because I, I don't know, the more you understand, for me, the more I understand how they did it, something good, you know, the, yeah. the, the more fun it is. Well, at the very top of our conversation, and actually, I think uh, midway point, you gave a little shout out. So just wanted to throw it over to you if you wanted to talk about more the project that you had that's uh, probably, given when this is going to go out, maybe it's just wrapping up, but it is streaming. So it should be available for, for a while yet if you wanted to talk about that with our listeners. Yes, the show is called 101 Scariest Movie Moments of All Time. It's on Shudder. If you have an AMC account or an AMC Plus account, you should be able to watch it that way as well. Um, It was a really fun show. Basically what we do is we just count down a bunch of scary movies. Um, You know, it's called the scariest movie moments of all time, but I'll I'll tell you guys the honest truth. At a certain point, it just became, hey, what are good good horror movies? And then we... Exactly. So it's just like one segment after another where it's like, hey, isn't this movie great? And then we kind of just <laughs> show you that movie. And then we move on to the next one. Oh, this movie's great too. So that's if that sounds like a show that y'all want to watch, I highly encourage you to watch it because we had a lot of fun making it and we did a pretty good job. It does. It absolutely does. Yeah. 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 Well, as Dan said, everybody, please go check it out. Um, I mean, I personally love horror any time of year. doesn't have to be specifically October. I don't put those kind of parameters on you my do horror what you viewing. Want. Yeah, do what I want. So encourage you guys to please check that out. And Dan, just thank you again no, for being on you. the show. It was a true pleasure. We love you. And thank you for just a great time. Aw, ditto, you guys. We love you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Thank, Thank you, Dan. You. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. Uh, of all the times to feel really silly asking this, <laughs> but Derek, you must, you must I, ask I must. Yes. I am compelled. You have to. Derek, would you watch this film again? Yes. Yes. I will. I, I probably already have watched it again since we recorded this. Yeah. 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 I'm, just because it's like the Halloween season. Right. It's uh, it's not just one of my favorite like Halloween scary movies. It's one of my favorite movies ever. It's as strange as this might sound to some. It's like one of our comfort movies. We put it on going to bed. I mean, shocking, shocking that like we've already said that we basically only talk about movies that we really like. Sure, but <laughs> but I really really like this movie. In so. terms of tears, this yes. is like right up there. Yeah, yeah, like this and Raiders. S tier. S. What does that stand for? I don't know. It's like even better than A though. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Same. I mean, I just don't get tired of this movie. I think that that really speaks to 
why it's so special. And look, that's just us. Like other people maybe only ever watch it once and they're done with it. But And we've seen it a, a billion times. And every time I watch it, I feel like I still catch like one little thing that maybe I didn't notice before. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, it's just great. Even just like, you know, there's a scene where Steve comes into the bedroom and in the corner, it's just the loveliest little details. Like in the corner, you see like, I think it's like carpet samples because he works in like real estate. Like it's just like all these little things that are just so interesting that they put in. Never referred to, never used as a prop. And it's just there. Yeah. And I love it. Yeah. Same, same. I can find something new every time. Call to action. I don't know. It might just be what you mentioned about like that spot that uh, James Karen has on coach. Like, was ha- there? Have you seen it? And th- did they talk about moving the tombstones <laughs> and not the graves? Did they talk about that? I mean, that is as close to what is like probably the most impossible call to action to ask ever on this show. But I'm very curious. Would you? have smelled the tennis ball would you have given it a sniff <laughs> that's a good one too would you have smelled the tennis ball or would you have tasted it he doesn't taste. does he does he does no. he give it a taste or just does a sniff he, i think he, does he taste that's oh my, my call to action what do you do, do i you mean a, a, a sniff or a taste I don't that's know. like on a level of you know this when is a weird we've, this is a weird when we've ragged on like um aliens covenant where they go to the new planet and immediately take off their helmets. It's like, come on, man. Like, you don't just, like, do that with something you don't know what it is. Yeah. If I see a tennis ball, like, come through, like... <laughs> the wall. The, the wall between the living and the... De- I might give it a sniff. I don't know. Just- uh, okay, a sniff, fine. Yeah. Although that's still very dangerous. Definitely not taste. Probably not. Yeah. Okay, well... So, let us you, know your thoughts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It is the same handle for all three, at 80s Montage Pod, and 80s is 80s. Heavy sigh. Yeah. This is... Take a deep breath. This concludes our Halloween series for this season, mm-hmm. but... What we're really lucky for is that we're doing kind of a soft move out of horror. Mm-hmm. So sneak peek, mm-hmm. still kind of in this world. I, it, it very much is, but it kind of like pushes another very. I mean, more into comedy than yes. than like actual horror. I would say, but it's kind of an interesting, almost companion piece to Poltergeist because. It you, also... You've already spoiled it, by the way. What? I mean, you already oh, spoiled did. it, didn't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't have to even... Call to action. What did she say? <laughs> the burbs. Yeah. Uh, and Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, Carrie Fisher. Mm-hmm. Um, it's another really interesting film that delves into the dynamics between like a very suburban life. It's in the title. And, yeah, it's like literally in the title. So... Really excited to chat about that one. As always, we will have a awesome guest to talk about the movie with. And in the meantime, just thank you so much for hanging with us with all the different podcast choices that you have. We really appreciate that you are listening to ours. And we will talk to you again in two weeks' time. <laughs>